Major phone carriers make you sign contracts with rigid data plans to trap you into a kind of forced phonogamy. Sounds pretty insecure if you ask me. At Consumer Cellular, we believe in a more consensual and healthy form of phonogamy, free of contracts and more flexible to your data needs. This way, you stick around not because we force you to with contracts and fees, but because you love our phone plans. Like ardently love our phone plans. Phonogamously. Consumer Cellular. When Freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Man, boxing history, that's what we do. It's all, well, it's not all we do, but it, it constitutes quite a bit of what we do. But I'm here with my boy, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and just fellow fight history fanatic. What's up, bro? How are you? How's everything, my man? It's all right, man. You know, uh, boxing has been, I'd say, unexpectedly good. Thus far, I mean, we're only like a month or so into 2023, mm -hmm. so there hasn't been a lot, but what we have been given has been unexpectedly good, and so that's kind of the impetus or the the motivation behind what we're talking about today. Absolutely, man. You know, think about last week's fight, Emmanuel Navarrete against, um, who was it, Liam Wilson? Liam Wilson, yeah. Yeah. I don't think the majority of fans that were going to watch that fight, me included, which I was working it, um, thought that the fight would be ended up the way it was. All right, it was an early candidate for fight of the year contender. Those guys beat the shit out of each other. Wilson was basically a novice when you think about it. And he was only like, what, 10 and 0 or 11 and 0 or something like that? Like, he had a very shallow record. And especially be the, the thrown into the waters with a proven warrior like Navarrete, who's been just slam banging and destroying competition left and right since he came on the scene and massacred uh, Isaac Dogbay, what was it, a couple of years ago. And Navarrete has one of those like unpredictable free swinging styles that's really hard to like really gauge and connect to because you don't really know what the fuck he's going to do. And he can overwhelm you and everything like that. But, you know, the stars aligned that night, man. First off, Wilson had a deep set belief in himself. Um, Guy originally from Australia, but he came over to the U.S. and then started training at what was it, Barry Hunter's gym. And you got to give him credit for that because, you know, it takes a lot of guts to come from your own familiar territory and then go to another country and really double down with it with an um, with a proven track record, I guess, with a trainer and especially a gym that's like, you know, take no prisoners and you got to actually fight your ass off to get out of there. So he did that, you know, gained himself some valuable experience and working and sparring with all those guys over there. And he came to this fight extremely confident, and it showed. You know what I mean? He seemed at first Navarrete was, you know, was a slow starter. Was he also also looked like he was a little out of shape? You know what I mean? Like he had a little bit of a soft midsection. Uh, this fight was what at one thirty, so yep. yeah. And there was a little bit of controversy to that tat, to that also. I, mean, I guess you can allude to in a minute, but um, regardless, it just ended up being an incredible fight. Like Wilson and Nara, they, their styles just meshed perfectly, and um. Whenever you felt that Navarrete was about to like start overwhelming Wilson, Wilson would start coming back with flurries too. I was counting Wilson. He was landing some beautiful shots in the fight. And then when Navarrete went down, now everybody fucking collectively went, holy shit. You know what I mean? Because no one expected that. Um, as far as I know, that might've been the first time Navarrete's been down. If not, that was definitely the most he's ever been hurt in a fight. And it, it looked like you, you were on the cusp of a major, major, major upset. 
Um, it wasn't to be, but nonetheless, it was an incredible fight. And it wasn't one that anyone expected beforehand. Wilson just upgraded his um, his stock by tenfold. And everyone on Twitter and around the world, boxing in general, was talking about how much they can't wait to see him again. So even in defeat, his stock risk rose. And um, Navarrete shows that he still must see television after this. So It's unfortunate because uh, we also got to see it. <laughs> I, I don't want to focus on the controversy because the fight truly was very, very good. Uh, it was, we're talking about unexpected wars today, and this is exactly what we got. We got an unexpected war. Um, you know, Liam Wilson really rose to the occasion. And in a lot of ways, you know, he, he put forth a serious effort, but also on top of that really uh, stuck to a game plan that was, giving Navarrete serious difficulty and so uh yeah he he did a really really good job like I said he kind of rose to the occasion um but again there was controversy involved and part of that was with the weigh-in like you said weighing at 130 pounds according to Wilson and according to a couple of different um you know somewhat unbiased observers or uh witnesses he had been weighing in at, at the 126 to 126 and a half range for this 130 pound fight. Uh, but it was, that was like 20 minutes or so before the actual weigh-in was supposed to have taken place. And then when they got on the exact same scale, according to him, uh, he weighed in closer to 129 and a half. And he was kind of like taken aback, like what, what 129. And then, uh, I mean, it, it it seemed kind of strange that he would be making the claim, I guess, but he said that he suspected there had been some tampering with, or I'm sorry, did I, no, no, I reversed that. I apologize. He was weighing in 129 and a half. And when he got on, he was 126 and a half. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That wouldn't have made sense. That's why I was like, thought about it. I was like, what the fuck am I talking about? No, sorry. <laughs> he had been weighing in like a little under 130. So he was about on target. And when he weighed in, he was like 126 and a half, which was far closer to featherweight. And he said, he was like, Whoa, what the hell? Like I, I'm not that clear of 130, but then moments later when Navarrete weighed in, he weighed in just under 130. So the charge was made or the suspicion was made or whatever that uh, somebody had tampered with the scale and thus Navarrete was actually overweight and didn't actually weigh in. I mean, like you said, he looked kind of pudgy during the fight. He didn't really look like he was that much in shape. Obviously, he put some weight back on. Um, that in and of itself doesn't mean anybody fuck with the scale, but it it, it looked dodgy. It just and uh, there was also the video going around on Twitter. I don't really know what to make of it because it was slightly edited and like slowed down here and cuts oh, no, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what to make of that. I don't know that the video itself, I just know that it looked funky. And so that was not great. And so you don't want to hear things like that in a fight where the people are supposed to be making weight and shit like that. And on top of that, against the fighter who is basically, he, he doesn't have the hometown crowd with him or whatever. He's kind of coming into somebody else's territory, even if he has uh, relocated to the US. But then on top of that, Navarrete got, a fairly long count. Um, you know, he spit out. No, his that was absurd, my man. That was crazy. So I totally forgot about that. Yeah, Navarrete gets dropped. He gets dropped hard. Um, subsequently, spits out his mouthpiece. So in most 
most of us agree that, like, you know, especially considering what happened in um, Diego Corrales, <laughs> Jose Luis Castillo won, where Corrales spit out his mouthpiece intentionally a couple of times to buy himself some seconds before he miraculously came back. And another case where it's like the, I hate to fucking talk about the controversy because it was such a great fight. It was controversial. It was, it was. And even getting one point taken off saved him some more seconds too because Cortez had to, you know, had to go and be like, mm-hmm. one point, whatever, for, you know, one point, one point, one point. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's like teaching a fighter that you can eat a point if you can, if you have enough power to get that knockout or something, you know? It's and like, at that point, too, it didn't really you know. matter with Rallis. He had already gotten dropped twice. So, I mean, what's going to be another point at that point? You know what I mean? Like, he's, but yeah, Navarrete gets dropped. And then the referee did something that I can't recall ever really seeing before. If it's happened, it must have happened a long ass time ago. He gave Navarrete the mouthpiece to put him back in himself, more or less, right? Like, he didn't take it. He didn't bring it to a court. He didn't even rinse it off or anything. Just grabbed it and kind of gave it to him. And he saw Navarrete <laughs> fumbled it, a la Mike Tyson, Buster Douglas. Where he, yeah, you, know, you can't do shit when you have gloves you on, have dude. Gloves on. You can't do anything, let alone take a little small rubber piece yeah, of rubber. Somehow he got and his mouthpiece in, too. Like, he got some he skills got with that shit. His head is clearly wonky. <laughs> I don't know. You might, you might be able to, like, you know, tie a fucking, tie a, a, a cherry stem in his mouth. <laughs> Maybe he's got some skills or so. I don't know, but you know this. I I don't think I've ever seen that either. And the and one of the worst things, in my opinion, when it comes to referees, and I'll be brief about it. I promise, is that in in being indecisive, dude. Yeah, it's all you can't. You know, even if you make the wrong call, but you're decisive about it. It's almost I'd rather that, and then you can go back and video or something. But dude was like he was about to put it back in his mouth, and then he was like, I actually no, here you do it. <laughs> What the fuck are you doing, bro? And yeah, so then yeah. all that did was just eat up extra time. A lot of people forget too about the Corrales Castillo thing was that uh immediately before that it was Asselino Freitas that did it to Corrales, and everyone was like, Oh, Freitas, what a fucking guy. But you know, they they excuse Corrales for it. So it's like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> makes you think. But anyway, um, yeah, dude, it wasn't a good look. It wasn't a very good look as far as the Arizona commission goes with the weigh-in and then with the officiating. Um, overall, the officiating was not fantastic on the card. So it it, it just did not really give uh, a great look overall. And yeah, but beyond that, dude, it was a really, really good fight. It was a fun fight uh, past Navarrete in the knockdown. Um, you know, Wilson really seemed to miss an opportunity in the wake of that because Navarrete looked hurt, dude. He looked about done. He was and doubled Wilson over. Didn't go to the body either. Like I remember, like I just said, That's... I counted Wilson for that fight, and he threw an abnormally low amount of body punches. And Navarrete's body was there for the taking. Yeah, like I said, it was very fleshy. He was hunched over. Yeah, he was against the ropes. Over. And the few times that Wilson went to the body, he had success. He did. He didn't go there very often, but he landed whenever he decided to throw it out yeah. there. And you know, but I mean, again, he like this was his first major fight like this, and if anything, he should just be building in confidence because he fought a hell of a fight, and yeah. he fought a fight that no one expected. Everyone thought he'd get blown out before seven rounds, and I know a lot of people lost their bets whenever they were trying to hedge on you know whatever round the fight was going to end in above or below seven or whatever it may be. Yeah, so you know, and I'd be remiss if uh, you know we didn't at least bring up. Also, the DAZN card because uh, some of the results and kind of how those fights played out too. Um, 
I don't want to just bring them up because it was ladies boxing, but it was actually a pretty good card. Uh, some of the action was fairly sloppy, but even so, the fights were entertaining and also notable because they featured, you know, uh, well, in this in this case, they featured, uh, you know, the uh, undisputed, two undisputed fights between Alicia Baumgartner and uh, Amanda Serrano. So, I mean, notable. That being said, um, you know, they also kind of, like I said, wound up just being unexpected wars in a couple of cases and uh some people had some funky scores all around and i'm not really sure what to make of you know how everybody how everybody uh went from there and i don't think you had even had a chance to catch the card man you were working this weekend and doing all sorts of shit i was i was so busy this weekend that I had to, i'm still catching up on everything but i've caught in highlights of the of the women's card and yeah they're both of them were just absolute wars but um as as usually are, man. Serrano fights are usually must see, even if she has like overmatched competition, she still, you know, creates entertaining fights. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Baumgartner, who's become a major favorite over this past year with um the way she built her uh super fight up with um uh, Michaela Mayer, came off with the win on that. And then after this fight too, she had a war with that. And then, you know, the post fight interview where she uh mentioned um the reason why she kind of fell flat later on in the fight. So um <laughs> Like, yeah, but and that makes it even more of a badass too, because holy shit, like that's that's pretty incredible to say that yeah, you know. know. She had just started her period, basically. She was she, she, she yeah. and I mean, dude, you know, I'd imagine she's in a lot of pain. Uh, yeah. Might not have even been easy for her to make weight, etc., because water retention. So uh, yeah, dude, Ow. that was getting hit in the body. Ah, no, I mean, all credit to her. She's. All the women on that card were bad as shit. It was you a great, know, it was a great place. You know and I mean? frankly, uh, you know, frankly, between uh, Amanda Serrano, Alicia Baumgartner, Sky Nicholson, and Ramla Ali actually looked pretty good, but mm-hmm. all of the favorites to some degree looked a little bit flat, and that made for the fights, you know, being a little bit better than some people expected them to be. And I mean, that's been kind of the big issue with for a lot of people, and in reality for women's boxing is that it's still struggling competition wise, even though some of the divisions are indeed filling out little by little, it's still struggling competition wise in terms of the, de- the depths in the division. Again, getting better though. Uh, a lot of the and names certainly grown leaps and bounds from the nineties. No when question. We were- Christy Martin and uh, Lucia Riker and others were featured against. Absolutely no question. Old- Actually women that probably just never even had a professional fight, even though they had padded records of five or six or whatever fights, you know? So there we go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. And you know, everybody, uh, everybody on that, on that card was an actual fighter, was a serious fighter. I mean, there was some funky styles. Who was it? Uh, Tanya Alvarez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that if I've ever seen a fighter. I mean, I, no, nah, I mean, we've seen some pretty fucked up stupid looking fighters over the years, but I just don't know if I've ever seen anybody with that exact style where they kind of just put their gloves in and just walk at somebody like that. Yeah, but, it, but it was kind of a, it was oddly effective for much of the fight. And Sky Nicholson was, uh, she did not, she did not have the kind of outing that she was looking for. And Tanya Alvarez was like, she kind of may her a little bit, just, you know, awkward and tough to pin down type what of shit. People, bro? You know I mean? The, if you have a really awkward style, but you're rough and strong and somehow can make the awkward style work instead of just looking ridiculous, then yeah. you're going to be hell of a night for anybody. My is a perfect example. There's other fighters out there too who just had a really rough, awkward style that it's just you're not going to look good against them. And because yeah. they're so rough and tumble and strong, it's going to be a rough, not rough night regardless. 
And then uh, I was the last one I was talking about was Rama Ali and Avril Mathy. And Avril Mathy had been criticized previously because she had a had or I think has also a notable modeling career. And so, you know, anytime a woman is pretty, but also a fighter or attractive and also a fighter, people are like, wow, she's got to choose one. You, know, you can't do both. Why? I don't know. But she obviously proved uh, against Ramla Ali going up uh, like about a division and a half, actually, that she's clearly very tough, that she is a serious fighter, that she could take a punch and that she was in there to win, even though she was outmatched in pretty much every moment of the fight. And in a in a few a few rounds actually did fairly well, too. So anyway, top to bottom, uh, it was an entertaining card. And the women showed out, dude. They got to get credit. Um, there's still a long way to go, but as you said, they've come a long, long way. And I know that a lot. It's gonna hurt a lot of people to hear. It hurts me a little bit to say, but you're gonna have to get a little bit of credit to Jake Paul for that, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of what you want to think of the guy, you know, I mean, he's very over the top. Him and his brother and all that. There's he's a lot of stuff to criticize him for. Don't get me tons, wrong, but tons, tons. That doesn't mean that doesn't make them good people. All right. So, yeah, you got it. You know, yeah, put it out there. But you can't deny, like you just said, Pat, you can't deny what he's done. You know what I mean? In terms of getting the Amanda Serrano out there in the world like that, you know, if it wasn't for him, I'm not sure if this fight with Katie Taylor would have came to fruition because think about it, all the times they tried to make it beforehand in the years past, and they've always come kind of close. And for whatever reason, it couldn't happen. It finally yeah. does. She's getting more attention. Everybody else is getting more attention. He makes sure that people on his undercard, like, in that sense, he's good for the sport. In that sense, he's actually looking forward to people. Yeah, I mean, he's looking out for people, so. You know, that's that's been kind of on the tail end of that card. And Amanda Serrano, uh, you know, she had a little bit of a struggle against Erica Cruz. But again, also, Erica Cruz came to fight. Um, you know, that has been the talk on the tail end of this card and in the aftermath is that they're trying to make the rematch between Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor, and they definitely want to make it in Ireland, which I know some people are like, Ireland, come on, that's unfair. But it's uh, for a whole bunch of reasons that I won't get into because it would probably take a few minutes. Ireland has been in a bad way. And when it comes to sports and boxing in the last handful of years, there hasn't been a whole lot of notable, especially pro-boxing, happening in Ireland and the amateur scene there has been really suffering uh, in no small part because of Daniel Kinahan's involvement and subsequent, you know, extreme fall from grace and because of his involvement in, uh, in Irish boxing and some fighters there. And also because of that, the, you know, the frightening incident where people stormed a fucking way in in Dublin with AKs and started shooting up the fucking joint. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, that kind of discouraged people for a while. So uh, Ireland has been, you know, especially for a place that has been stereotypically involved in boxing for so long, uh, for them to not really have that opportunity has been hurtful to a lot of people. And so that's a really big story and really big, uh, has a, a lot of potential. And so that's kind of been the talk. That's where they're supposedly going. I don't know if they're going to Croke Park or if they're heading somewhere else, but it sounds like it's probably almost certainly going to happen, which should be huge. Uh, it's going to be absolutely massive out there. Katie Taylor's a god in that country right now. Um, and she has, you know, 
the Olympic pedigree and the world titles and everything she's done in her career to, to back that up. I mean, if I would consider her probably the number one pound for pound female fighter on the play, uh, women's fighter out there right now. I mean, you can flip a coin between her and Clarissa Shields, but Katie Taylor is right up there. She's incredible. And I was at that first fight with Amanda Serrano at their fight at MSG. And Pat, that was one of the best fights I've ever been to. That was probably definitely the best fight I've seen at MSG. And just in general, like the atmosphere and then the way those two just delivered, they beat the shit out of each other that night. But it wasn't just wild, reckless slugging. Like there was just so much beautiful skill and nuances and the the flows and the pace and back and forth and everything. Like it was a legitimately razor thin fight that I thought Serrano might have edged out, but I wasn't mad that Taylor got the decision. And so, yeah, they need to do it again. And to have it in that country, it's going to be even bigger than what it was at MSG, I think. Yeah, it, it'll be massive, dude. Absolutely yeah. massive. Um, and they both come out, and they both had subsequent fights since then. You know what I mean? And it's just that they're clamoring for it. This fight needs to happen. You know, they they just did. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like they're they're selling out like to the point where they're busting at the seams or stuff like that. But I mean, look, dude, it's I'm not trying to set a low bar here, but even so, even if you were setting a low bar. It doesn't matter because they are exceeding a lot of expectations. The women are as far as selling, and they just sold really, really well at Madison. Uh, it was a Madison Square Garden Theater, I think, right? And you know, there there was a great crowd for that. A lot of people are are excited. Amanda Serrano is not the kind of superstar that Katie Taylor is in Ireland, but is still very, very recognized and recognized as a top fighter in women's boxing and in boxing overall. It's a big, big fight, dude. Uh, and it's the kind of fight where I think that also kind of to what you were saying too, it's, we don't know yet, but maybe in about five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a big chunk of Irish women who have, were inspired by Katie Taylor, who have, you know, oh, really, who've come cool. out of Ireland. You know, I mean, I don't know exactly what that'll mean, but it should be pretty cool. But anyway, I mean, if you see all those videos too, when she's there with like little, uh, little girls and stuff like that, who talk about inspiring. her dad, you know, yeah totally you know every fighter if they're you know depending on where they come from whatever like that they always have a following of people that are inspired by them little kids who admire them and want to grow up to be like them one day and good chance that a couple of them will try to end up becoming fighters after that whether they become successful or not who knows but we've heard those stories in the past this is a tried and true method that's been happening for decades and decades so yep. you know felix trinidad in the yeah. wake of uh wilfredo gomez and then, you know, Juan Manuel Lopez, hint, hint, in the wake of Felix Trinidad, you know, Miguel Cotto, et cetera. So, I mean, it's a lot of it travels in a, in a pretty clear line in terms of inspiration and motivation and whatnot. So, speaking of which, though, that's exactly what motivated us to talk about some history today. These unexpectedly good fights that we have gotten in the last week or so. And, hey, hopefully we get some more, but it's history time, bro. History. What about some of Yep, these surprisingly good fights, unexpected wars, whatever nomenclature you want to use. Yeah. Feed me one. All right, bro, you ready? We're going back to 1979. 1979. We're on the cusp of the 1980s before the big boom, you know, glitz, glamour, boxing, the overall just greed of that decade. And the heavyweight champion is Larry Holmes in 1979. You know what I mean? At this point, Larry's still struggling for respect. He's still in the Muhammad Ali shadow. Um, he's only made a couple of defenses of the heavyweight title so far. Guy, you know, after his epic win against Ken Norton, who was considered a paper champion. So Holmes already was coming in with a masterick on his back. 
because Muhammad Ali had just retired, but wasn't fully retired. There was still all these rumblings of him coming back and whatever. Well, him in the spotlight, you know, old grumpy Larry Holmes was always going to be on the back end. And defending your title against Alfredo Evangelista and Ozzy Ocasio was not going to get the public clamoring for you to, you know, to embrace you as being the new kingpin. So as 1979 rolls around, Larry Holmes goes to New York City <laughs> fight an anonymous guy <laughs> with a record of 19 and 8 by the name of Mike Weaver. And that's where we're at right now. <laughs> I hope that was a good little intro. <laughs> nah, dude, it's a good intro for sure. And and a lot of the stuff that was happening immediately before 1979, we've done shows on in the past. And, you know, we might even reboot just because stuff always changes. We've gotten better, et cetera. But, um, you know, 1976, the Olympics, we were just talking about influence and whatnot, massive influence on the U.S. But then fast forwarding there, you know, uh, especially in the heavyweight division, Muhammad Ali, you know, obviously winding down as a heavyweight champion. And, and a lot of that had to do with the rise of Larry Holmes, who came at least partially from Muhammad Ali camp or had worked in Muhammad Ali's camp for a while as uh, one of his chief sparring partners. Um, and had been kind of taken under his wing and stuff like that. So there are a lot of, oh, and also, of course, Don King's U.S. Championship Tournament. There was a lot of shit going on in boxing right in the in the few years immediately preceding this. So there's this is a very interesting time. But, uh, you know, 1978, that's when Larry Holmes, you know, goes at it with Ken Norton. Absolutely epic fight. But the heavyweight division, like I said, it's kind of, it's in a weird spot, dude. There aren't a no, ton it of... really was. Once Muhammad Ali retires um, after defeating Leon Spinks in a rematch, that's when like ground zero basically happens, and it was like the cusp of the lost generation. So Leon Spinks becomes heavyweight champion and a massive upset uh, against Muhammad Ali. Throws the whole division up in a tailspin. Ali comes back, wins the belt, and immediately retires. Um, well, it's like even people knew it was going to happen sooner or later. They knew, you know, Ali is obviously slowing down, but it was like people were like, I guess Spinks, what? You know, well, here's the thing, too, is that this was the first time, though. This is when the fucking division becomes split for the first time because when Spinks beat Ali, Spinks was still, there was, you know, Ali was undisputed champion. There wasn't no like split titles, or anything like that. You know, there was a WBC and the WBA, but Ali was both of them and at that point. Even though the WBC and WBA loved having splinter titles in every other division, at heavyweight, they just left it as is because Ali was such a big name. Both of those organizations wanted him as their champion. They were fine with that. Once Spinks becomes champion, that's when they were ready to start. Like, you know what? We can start trying to do whatever we can. And Don King comes into the mix. Because at that point, um, Spinks had two options. One at the WBC, he had to defend against Ken Norton. The other one, WBA, you can get a rematch with Ali immediately. Obviously, the more lucrative fight is rematch with Ali, as opposed to fighting a dangerous guy in Norton, when you're not going to get let a, not as much publicity, money, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a good chance he was going to lose. Yeah, so, a total pain in the ass to fight. I mean, yeah. if you, unless you're a bomber, you're pain in the ass to fight. Exactly. Spinks wasn't really that. He was a swarmer, so he would have fed right into Norton. But um, so, of course, he goes with the Ali rematch. Um, Don King gets into the year of the WBC. WBC has an absolute bullshit rule back then where they say that you can't um, you can't give it a re immediate rematch to a guy you just defeated for the belt or something like that. And so they strip him they strip Leon Spinks of the title. Just basically just to like, you know, to satisfy Don King. So um yeah, you know like, what I mean? It's, it's like a up. it's like the dude who gets cut by a head but has to get a point deducted or you know, it's like some yeah, fucking exactly. rule that's just like what? Stupid, stupid rule. 
that you don't really understand why they do it, but when you think more about it, it makes more sense with all the money that is involved with it. So anyways, to not to get things so cluttered and confused, but after that happens, they strip him. Ken Norton fights Jimmy Young. That fight was supposed to be an eliminator. And once Norton beats Young by a controversial decision, he subsequently gets named as de facto champion. Um, Spinks keeps the WBA belt, and then they go on their own direction. Anyways, back to WBC. Like you said, Pat, Larry Holmes wins an epic decision over him. But now he's just kind of caught in, like, in a flux. Like, there's, you know, people still consider Ali the man. Um, no one really likes Holmes like that. I mean, Holmes is a good fighter. He's clearly proven himself in the Norton fight. But, I mean, his two title defenses against these two guys are not getting anyone excited. Like I said, Ocasio and Evangelista. Plus, every interview he has, all he's doing is complaining about Muhammad Ali. You know, Ali's holding him down. Ali needs to get out of the spotlight. Ali just needs to go away. Why can't I get my respect? The fans are not trying to hear all that. Holmes was really bitter. And by the time he comes to New York City to fight Mike Weaver in 1979, no one's excited about this fight either. Weaver is an unknown unknown commodity at this point. He has a really spotty record. And if you start looking into his record, there was a lot of losses there where you just kind of lay away. Well, for instance, he gets knocked out by Dwayne Bobbick early in his career. A lot of people got knocked out by Bobbick early on while Bobbick was on the rise. But not only did he get knocked out by Dwayne Bobbick, he got knocked out by his brother. Yeah, he got he knocked out by the not very good brother. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough you get knocked out by one Bobbick, but both of them? You know, as Carlos Acevedo put it in his article, that was, you know, the twin great white hopeless back in the day. So, like, that wasn't a good thing to have on your, on your ledger to get knocked out by both Bobbick brothers. But then you got to think about this with Mike Weaver as well, all right? Weaver, when he first started his career, even though he was body beautiful and a former, you know, a Marine or whatever, he didn't take his career seriously. He really just thought he fought basically just to pay the bills or whatever what was needed. So he would take a fight on a week's notice, two weeks notice, go to the gym, train for like a day or two, go to the fight, and then fight for three or four rounds before he ran out of gas and then lose. That was his whole game, you know? He just naturally looked like a fucking massive bodybuilder. Exactly. And things were, you know... For the first like year or so of his career, he ends up at six and six. And like I said, he's been knocked out twice by Bobbix. He's been, which is hilarious to think about in retrospect. And like, you know, other guys he's losing to. But things start slowly changing for him at this point by the like the mid to late 70s. Even though he has a spotty record, people start taking notice of him because you see natural ability there, even though he might not see it. So first off, he gets with a manager by a guy by the name of Don Manuel, who was a a, you know, a well-to-do manager who was going to look out for him. For the first time in his career, he had somebody to look out for him. Second, he ends up hooking up with a trainer, a former fighter by the name of Ray Barnes. Ray Barnes was a good fighter back in the day, actually went the distance with Sugar Ray Robinson, knew how to fight, and obviously knows how to train guys. So if Weaver's going to have somebody that's going to actually teach him some shit, you can't, you know, this is about as good as it gets. Third, Weaver became a spar partner for Dun Dun Dun, who we just bring up before, Ken Norton a regular spar partner for him. Not only does Norton give him the nickname Hercules that Weaver would end up keeping for the rest of his career, but Norton also, like, training with Norton and sparring with him all those times made started developing Weaver's style on his own, too. He started, you know, um, copying things with Norton. Similar to the cross-arm defense, not completely Norton's style, but, like, doing a, a version of it, you know, learning how to, like, throw flurries off of that, you know, working off of the jab, things like that. Weaver became a good fighter all of a sudden. He still had a spotty record, but the fights that he what he rather would have been losing, now he's starting to win. And by the time he gets in with Larry Holmes now, um, like we said, he was six and six. Now he's 19 and eight. Still very unauspicious. And in 1979, if you just look at a record like that and you don't have the necessary um 
tools to do the research on who we fought or whatever, you're going to be like, who the fuck is this guy? So yeah, ticket sales at MSG were really, really slow. I mean, Don King was going above and beyond trying to get this fight to get any type of traction. Even putting Roberto Duran against Carlos Palomino, which would be a main event anywhere else, on the undercard. Because you knew that would be a big fight in New York. Duran is an absolute gold in New York. Palomino, recently deposited former welterweight champion. That's a big fight. If anything, Pat, you probably agree with me. That, would pro- that fight would probably be a pay-per-view main event today. That's just that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, you know, one of those guys would easily put that as like their pay-per-view. I mean, look, if you're going to put fucking Keith Thurman against um, Barrios, Duran, Palomino... <clears throat> Whatever. So he puts that as the main undercard attraction. Even as when Duran Palomino was the main undercard attraction, ticket sales were still lagging because they just figured Larry Holmes was in for a routine nothing. And not only that, New York City was on the cusp of bankruptcy. Like, in 70s, New York was in really, really, really bad shape. And the heavyweight division, uh, the heavyweight title, I think, was only defended twice in that entire decade. And the first one was Ali Frazier, obviously the most epic fight ever. And then the second one was in 1977 with Ali against Ernie Shavers. That was it. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of heavyweight fights in the garden during the 70s, a lot of other fights too, but it just, it didn't, you know, things didn't really work out. So here's where we are in 1979 now. And we got Larry Holmes, Mike Weaver for the heavyweight title. And yeah. Dude, it's, and I mean, I, I could see, especially at the time going into that, uh, you know, Mike Weaver, he was on a little bit of a streak, but I mean, it wasn't like it was a fantastic streak. You had Bernardo Mercado, who at the time, who it was just coming off a loss to Big John Tate. So that in and of itself is kind of like, eh, because a lot of people, even though John Tate was large, they were suspicious, too, you know, because he was just large and lumbering. You know, they he had power, but he didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot else there. And so, you know, losing to John Tate, you know, a lot of people were suspicious, but Mercado uh, was a dude who had, he had gotten his contract kind of pushed around a couple of different places. Even when he was undefeated, he had had some involvement with Joe Conforte when he had bought uh, uh, Oscar Bonavena's contract in the mid seventies. And so, you know, Mercado was a dude who was well-known also among like a, like kind of as a sparring partner. He was a pretty well-known sparring partner at the time. But then, in any case, Mike Weaver wound up defeating uh, Bernardo Mercado. And then after that, he goes on and he uh, gets a win over Stan Ward. And I mean, again, like these aren't like, this is not murderer's row here. But this is, I guess, enough to kind of propel him up in the rankings and get him a shot against Larry Holmes in 1979. And I mean, you know, at the Garden... This is a pretty big opportunity, bro. And even so, they wound up pushing uh, over 14,000 people in there. But that being said, this was not the kind of fight where people were like, okay, you know, this is going to be gangbuster shit. This is the kind of shit where people are like, let's Larry Holmes get through this and see if he can get some sort of shot at Ali after this or, you know, whatever. Like they were looking forward to what was ever happening afterward. I mean, think of this. All the major networks then rejected it. ABC, NBC, all of them. None of them won the air of the fight. Who ended up airing it? HBO, which was a complete startup in 1979 when it came to airing boxing. Well, and that kind of goes to what you were just talking about, dude. You know, pushing a fight to pay-per-view because yeah. it's not really going to get sold anywhere else. And I mean, yeah. there, you just like today, there are some advantages to that. Like, for instance, it, it gives you an immediate return as far as what that fighter is selling like 
what the interest is, you know, et cetera. But obviously the downside is that it's on pay-per-view. You got to fucking buy it. Totally. So that was the thing. How many people had HBO back in 1979? I'm not even sure what they were airing back then, you know? So yeah, this is where we were at. But to get to the fight, you know, everyone like, again, this thought it was just going to be anticlimactic. Holmes beats him and then he moves on to a rematch with Ernie Shavers later on in the year. But Weaver, to his credit, I mean, you know, a guy that he said before the fight, he was inspired by watching the Rocky movie on loop over and over and over to the point where he was convinced he was going to be Rocky, put on the most awe-inspiring fight of his life. You know what I mean? Like, at first, Holmes was landing easy. He was jabbing him and just kind of doing what he did in most fights. And Holmes, too, was very arrogant. Like, in the beginning of it, if you watch it, like, he can tell he kind of has disdain for Weaver and thinks he's not in his class, which he had every right to believe that. And kind of treated him as such. But when he tried to push up, and I forget which round it was, where the tide started turning, but, like, there was a round where Holmes goes in there with full intention, I'm going to take him out now, and tries, like, you know, throwing his flurries. But then Weaver starts fighting back. And Holmes almost seems a little surprised that he does. And the one thing about Weaver, you can say, even though, like, you know, he can have lulls of being bored and, like, inactivity and yada, 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 he had dynamite in both fists. And when he hit Holmes, Holmes had that look of like, oh, shit, you know, and then that's when the fun started. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the middle rounds, like toward the middle rounds, he started landing and it was like, you know, he was not he was not uh, like a he was kind of like a somewhat compact swinger, but he was a free swinger, though, and he could bang, dude. And he was the kind of guy where like, you know, he could catch his slipping. And that was the thing about Holmes, too. Holmes could get arrogant in there. Like you said, he could like get a little bit like uh complacent, like, you know, he, he could kind of get almost like formulaic. Like he'd just jab, 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 right, jab, 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 right, left jab, jab. You know, he wouldn't really vary it up for a while. And it was almost like he'd start going to sleep a little bit. And that was the problem is you could catch Holmes slipping. And that's why a whole bunch of fight, a whole bunch of uh fighters, especially fighters who were like, you know, considered not that good or considered not on his level sometimes caught him slipping i mean that was maybe the biggest knock against him was that he could get caught, caught slipping and that's exactly what happened against weaver a little bit uh you know right when holmes kind of wades in and i don't remember seven six seven he kind of goes in and he's like all right you know like let's end this shit and weaver just starts hitting him with the fucking two three three two two three three two you know he just starts going boom 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 boom, boom you know like back and forth You're muted. Oh, can you hear me? My bad. Yeah, I didn't there you go. No, no, it's all good. So, nah, dude, it was it was incredible. You know what was incredible is that like Holmes is like you said, he's landing and he's doing his thing, but the Weaver starts rallying back. It started in round four. And Holmes, and that's when like the battle of attrition started because Holmes realized he's in a fight now. He wasn't um, I don't think he was in the top shape that he should have been because, again, he kind of has a little bit of disdain for Weaver. And Weaver is now inspired. And not only that, the crowd, who was noticing that this isn't going to be like a complete massacre of three rounds or whatever, and like seeing that Weaver is like giving Holmes trouble and that Holmes is fading a little bit, are starting to get wildly behind Weaver now too because they're sensing maybe an upset. And that's building Weaver's momentum. And the last thing you wanted to, like, wanted to do with a guy like Mike Weaver was let him get into a rhythm because once you get into a rhythm, he's going to be hard to break like any uh, like any fighter. And... Holmes was allowing him to do that, you know, and Holmes, like you said, even though he could box beautifully, he didn't mind getting to a battle of the trenches either if he had to, and he started letting Weaver do that, 
And that was the last thing he needed to do because Weaver was stronger than him on the inside. You know, and he was landing and he was landing hard. And Holmes, a couple of times, was visibly hurt. At one point, it should have been called a knockdown. If it happened today, it would have been. Um, I don't know. I don't remember the exact round, but Weaver caught him and Holmes went skiddling across the ring like there and the ropes held him up, you know. And um, yeah, it was it was a compelling, incredible fight. So battling out throughout the rounds and stuff like that, they're going back and forth, back and forth. And when it looks like Weaver might actually take over for good, that's when around, like around round 11 or so, Holmes just throws a desperation uppercut, just a beautiful one. And it ends up landing, you know. Holmes has always been known for a guy that's always been known for his one-two. You know what I mean? Not even throwing the right hand as much. He's always known strictly for his left, mostly his jab. He has he had one of the greatest jabs in history. And but if he had to get in there, he had a wicked uppercut too that he could throw. You know, on the inside, like you didn't see it often. But if he had to, when he was feeling good, he would. Really that on you. And that's what he did. And he could see he had everything, everything left, and he landed and landed squarely on Weaver's jaw. And when Weaver goes down. Um, I have a book. It's by the photographer George Kalinsky, who was the Madison Square Garden's resident photographer for decades. And it's a close-up of Weaver on the canvas. You just see Holmes's legs, and then you see Weaver laying there with his mouth open, kind of glazed, and he's looking ahead, and he's just completely like just gone from that shot. But and that was the, that was the end of it basically. It was the end right there. But you can't say we. I don't know. Him. I don't know if Larry had another three rounds in him, dude. Oh, absolutely not. So absolutely. I mean, he was tired. He was getting dead tired, and he was like, <laughs> and I mean, and Weaver. I don't know if Weaver had all that much either, but Weaver was like ready to go just on will alone. But that shot, you know, well, it was like a, it was kind of like at the tail end of like a combination. Like he just kind of started going in on him in the 12th mm -hmm. round and but that was like that rally was exactly what he needed like real bad and but i mean you know that it's often not really remembered i don't know if you'd call it like a war but it was really back in yeah no it would it was pretty, was good pretty war. good fight oh yeah no that was an excellent nah, fight fuck it call it a war fuck it i'm <laughs> signing off on it that was a war because that was you know completely unexpected holmes had to come through some shit to win that fight that ended up becoming one of Holmes's um, more notable title defenses over the years. Once his, you know, once his reign ended in 1985, and um, yeah, thinking about what happened with Weaver afterwards too, yeah, it becomes even more like interesting and compelling because Weaver, like like we said, you know, there's other guys we're gonna bring up that their stock obviously went super high after that fight, like Wilson's did this past weekend. But um, Weaver was able to capitalize on that, you know, because after the Holmes fight, people were like, oh shit, you know, blah blah blah, and then. Soon after, John Tate, who I'm sure we're going to end up doing a deep dive on one day on a, on a show, um, is a WBA champion, right? And he decides to defend against Weaver. And then move that Bob Aaron thinks, you know, and you think about it, it's actually not that bad of a decision. Because in, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, Larry Holmes just went to hell and back with him, with Mike Weaver. I'm going to put John Tate with him. You know, Weaver just had, a, just had a good night. Holmes looked like shit. Tate's my guy. And it should be an easy win for him, right? And then from there, Tate was going to fight Muhammad Ali for the comeback. And for more or less, that fight went according to the script. Because Tate's in their hometown, Tate is out boxing the shit out of Weaver, who was just walking into punch after punch after punch. Um, besides a brief moment in round 10 where Weaver landed a hook that got Tate's attention, you know, kind of wobbled him briefly, Tate was on a commanding lead until that last round when Weaver landed one punch and knocked him completely stone cold silly. So, yeah. 
Um, and then from there, after he lost the title controversially to Michael Dokes, Weaver still lasted throughout the entire decade into the 90s as a serviceable opponent. You know, a guy that could still spring an upset here and there like he did against Carl Williams or another guy. But anyways, would just always provide some good experience for a fighter. Yeah, dude, it, he had a, you know, he threatened to go on a good run there. And had that not happened uh, with, with Dokes, you know, the Quetze fight, you know, that was massive in terms of his, history. Uh, the Tate fight, that, fight. Yep. the the ending to the Tate fight, massive. You know, the Dokes fight in the in about a month after Mancini Kim. So it was a big like ah, you know, stop this early, and it wound up getting stopped way early. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened had had that not you know gotten stopped, and had he had potentially gotten a win against Dokes. Um, yeah, I don't know, dude. You know, a lot of stuff really was in flux there, but. Yeah, definitely an unexpected war with Holmes and Weaver, dude. That's a good call. That's definitely a very good call. You know what? If Dokes, if not Dokes, if Weaver didn't land that left hook on Tate, I'm not sure if uh, Ali Holmes would have ever happened. Yeah, dude. And not to say that Ali would have won. I think Tate would have beat Ali at that point, too. But, like, I'm not sure Ali would have taken – I don't know. It just would have been – Yeah, that's – just given where Ali was at that time too, it's like any any old person who was at least decent could have stepped up and you know taken it. So, yeah, a lot of weird shit going on in the heavyweight division at the time, though. It was, but that had to be brought up. That was just one of those fights that no one thought anything of, and ended up being one of the better heavyweight fights of that time. So, absolutely, dude, no question. That's a good call. I uh, yeah, I I I did not go as far back from most of the fights that I had, but uh, for the most part. But I had some fun ones. I had some fun ones. I guess I'll start with probably the most recent of the fights that I went for, just because it's the easiest to remember, it's the easiest to go off of, and it's probably spend the least amount of time on it just because there's, like, you know, less to discover about it or whatever. But it might, some people might not like the fact that I'm saying it because they're going to go, what, dude, everybody loved it. Juan Juan Manuel Marquez versus Manny Pacquiao four, and I know, dude, because people are like, what? Definitely not wrong, <laughs> dude. I remember a lot of people were like, "This is so unnecessary. This is the dumbest fight. Why are they doing this? You know, Manny needs to move on. We need the Mayweather fight, etc." And like, you know, I'm not whatever. You know, sure, fine. We did need the Mayweather fight for sure, but like. It, what do you want me to say? I knew that just in terms of styles, they match up well. They matched up well three times already. You know, the, the first, all three of the first three fights were entertaining fights that were well matched. I knew that the fourth was going to be too. Um, especially it's like, you know, you, you keep matching the same fighters over like a decade and sooner or later, it's like they, all they do is slow down. Like they're, you know, they're just going to get slower and take punches worse. So the fights are just going to get better, you know, and it's, sorry. It's just, you know, for the most part true. So that's what I figured going into it, but a lot of people were dismissive of it. Um, you know, and I get it like mostly, I think in, in, in the vein of like, well, Pacquiao Mayweather needs to happen. So fuck anything that's not Pacquiao Mayweather. That was kind of like the thought, but I get it. It was just that that shit wound up being an absolute fucking war of attrition that was like a hair from being stopped because Juan Manuel Marquez's face was like falling a fucking part, bro. Awful. 
Well, it's true, man. You know, it's it's easy to to rewrite history, but this was wow. Looking back, well, this is what twelve years ago now. That would be twelve years ago this year. This year will be twelve years, right? Because this may happen. Uh, no, 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 eleven no, no. years. Eleven years. Eleven years. Yeah. Yeah. So before that fight, man, like you know, Marquez was already like slowing down. He wasn't very active. Yeah, I'm just going to look at his record right now because I don't remember. But like after. The uh, the last Pacquiao loss, like think about that. He fights a guy named Lee Car Ramos, which is a fight I don't even recall. And the Casitas fight was before that. And then Juan Diaz fight was before that. So yeah, Juan Diaz, Casitas, this guy Ramos. Then he loses to Pacquiao. And then he has one fight against an, another guy that I don't even remember this fight, Sergey Fenchenko, something like that. And then he's gonna fight Pacquiao. <laughs> and in all these fights, Marquez, like remember the Casitas fight, he gets dropped. Like the the Diaz fight, both Diaz fights, it was like the, especially the first one. It was the war and everything like that. And then when he lost the third fight with Pacquiao, that was one of those fights that like neither guy really set the world on fire. I don't recall it being like it was a compelling fight, but it wasn't one of those fights that you were just like, oh my god, you know what I mean? Like Marquez, you knew always had the style to beat Pacquiao, but at the same time, Marquez wasn't setting the world on fire at that point either. And then by the time they start coming into 2012. And Pacquiao is still on a roll, like, even though he lost that bullshit decision to Tim Bradley, like, you know, he's still considered the top guy on the planet. Marquez looks like he's now on the down end of it. Yeah, Pat, like you said, everyone thought that this was just going to be like a culmination where Pacquiao was just going to bludgeon him. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people just thought this is unnecessary. Like, why are we doing this? Um, and what the Juan Diaz fight, you know, dude, Marquez struggled real bad in that fight. Juan Diaz wasn't considered a puncher. And so people were like, uh, you know, maybe he's too high up in weight now. We don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> you know, there were a lot of variables. So I, I get why they would say it. And I'm not, I'm not like trying to, you know, I told you so too hard. But yeah, um, it was just a fight that was not viewed as anything more than, you know, let's get through this and then we can get to Mayweather Pacquiao or some shit like that. And then, sure enough, dude, early on, and and I guess I should also put on I I should also unfurl my fucking bias here. Um, I scored all three of the first three fights for Marquez. I thought that he won the first fight by a point. I, I don't even remember how much. I just remember it was a point because at the time I was remember like, oh fuck, he overcame you know fifty thousand knockdowns and still won. <laughs> I mean he outboxed the shit out of Pacquiao apart from like one round in the first fight. It was crazy. But even so uh, that one round was bad. And then in the second fight, uh, I thought that he won a bit more convincingly. And then in the third fight, I thought he was like, you know, a clear winner in the, in the third fight. I know a lot of people did. A lot of people felt that was kind of like, you know, not robbery status, but leaning that way. And so anyway, again, biased, I thought, uh, Marquez should have won all three of the, the first three fights and then didn't really look super good for him early on. <laughs> and we talked about it earlier before we started recording. He throws like out of nowhere, like from like across the ring, ah! you know, like a leaping shot. And man, he's like, ah! you know, it's, it's, it's the <laughs> Dude, one of those things. Like, like I, I, you know, the knockout, the knockout like wipes away almost everybody else's memory of the whole fight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was a highlight real knockdown, man, because Pacquiao went flying from that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if the knockout had not been so shocking, that would have been like the moment of the fight because it was so yeah, cartoonish. No. You know, he's just like, Bleh! you know, flies I mean, they, only had, they only had some vicious knockdowns in their fight. Like, 
you know, obviously the first fight with three knockdowns. Um, the second fight where remember uh, Marquez was like coming for an uppercut or something, and Pacquiao caught him with a left right there. Marquez like bounced like a basketball off the canvas because just the way his body was, the momentum of getting punched right there at the same moment just collided. Yeah, so like. But that knockdown dude, yeah, he threw like an overhand. It was like a video game fastball, like, you know, where, like in fight night, you know, when like you hold the controller so you get the maximum leverage right there and then you just let it go. <laughs> and somehow, sometimes it connects, sometimes it doesn't. When it connects, it knocks the shit out of your opponent. Well, it knocked the shit out of man. Yeah, he 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 was not expecting that punch right at that moment at all. I was surprised all. he got up, man, because that was a vicious shot. That would have knocked most people out. Oh, yeah. Out. Like his his head, like you know, knocked back, and you know, oh, yeah, on the yeah. canvas oh, and shit. Yeah, he wasn't bracing for that whatsoever. But then, but then, you know, Manny was like, "Fuck this," and just started bludgeoning this. They went to war, but the problem was that dude Marquez. It's like once he starts getting hit, like it's like his nose breaks on a whim, dude, and he starts doing the shit where he's like, like yeah. he just can't like close his mouth and there's like blood all over his face his face is all fucked up i think he had a cut over his eye too dude i mean and this was six rounds like it wasn't even halfway through the fight and he was fucked up bro he got hurt i mean it just turned into a, a an absolute bloodbath bro and it looked like it looked like uh marquez was absolutely on the verge of just ruin like his career was about to be over in yeah. moments and then i Dude, <laughs> I remember my daughter, she was two at the time and she was asleep in her room because, you know, we had like put her to bed and shit like that. And the fight, you know, it was the end of the fight and it had gone somewhat late ish or something like that. And I remember I, wa I was watching and I'm just like, holy fuck, this is so good, you know, trying to keep it quiet. And then the knockout happened. And I just remembered being like, ah! <laughs> You know, like trying to yell, but not, but not too loud, because my daughter's asleep. I'm like, babe, he's dead, knocked out, dying. Ah, you know, it's like so. It was shocking, bro. Because yeah. I mean, it was he crazy. had been knocked out before. It's not like you know, is unheard of, and he'd been hurt before. Marcus no, had hurt him. Before. The way he just fell face forward, just not moving. You know what I mean? Just Literally, a social media was like, he's dead. He's yeah. dying right now. And I'm not trying to even make light of it because we were all just like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that he fell was just like, and then once it, everybody figured out he's okay, it was like memes. Totally. Memes mm -hmm. for fucking days. <laughs> Poor God. You know, like that was the the two vicious knockouts. I was I was I was at the studio working at HBO that night. Because that's when oh I was my that's God, when, dude. When I was doing punch zone. And we all fucking went nuts when that happened and then we like you said we got hushed because we're like wait a minute he ain't moving then he died and, and it was, Mitt it was romney yeah yeah <laughs> it was this reaction when pacquiao flatlined uh, uh ricky hatton and like and you saw hatton laying there and he's like and we're like, oh my god, he might have like, you know, did he just kill him? And then you see like Hatton like slowly moving, like, oh, he did it, okay, yay! Same thing with this one. You're just like, yeah. because it's the way he jumped in, man. He leapt right into it, and Marquez didn't even throw full extension. It was like six inches, just you know. Yeah, it was so. It was like so, such a weird shot. Like in it's the way Pacquiao's head, like, all right. If you watch <laughs> for the wrestling fans who watch the who, who listen to this show, if you see a wrestler get their neck injured, 
That's the way I can explain it. Because that's the way Pacquiao's head looked. I mean, clearly, he didn't break his neck. But I mean, like, if you watch a wrestler like Sabu, for instance, Pat, you know who Sabu is, right? Yeah, yeah. Sabu's broken his neck a couple of times. And there's videos of it. You can see it. Like, the way he jumps and he slips or some shit. And you see, the like, he hands it. And you see his neck just kind of, like, compressed in. Like, just... The way yeah, Pacquiao's it's like they go head, limp. The way Pacquiao's head goes, you see it jolt back. It looked like his neck just, like, got shot into his shoulders. Like a turtle. Like, his... It was being like shot back into his shell, you know. It was it's crazy. Like some shit the human body's not supposed to do. Oh no, yeah. And if you get hit like that, yeah, your whole body's got a short circuit and you're out. Like, and that's what happened. And there was always controversy before after that fight too. Oh, uh, you know, because uh, Marquez hooked up with this shady nutritionist. Uh, was it Memo Heredia? And yeah, uh, yeah, Memo Heredia, he saw, who's, he who's the still and the chest and the chest acne that like you know. Reminiscent of an '80s wrestler who was clearly juicing that one at one point or nothing, but yeah. who knows? Well, yeah, shit that's making drinking his piss look fucking innocuous, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, there was definitely some controversy to that, no question. But and you know, amazingly enough, Pacquiao came back from it. That's amazing in and of itself that he would come back from a knockout like that. Not only come back, but like you know do yeah. well like to have an actual career after that is pretty amazing yeah absolutely i mean from a knockout like that i think people are everybody was getting ready to write pacquiao off and rightfully so i mean that was that was bad like to get a knockout like that most people a lot of guys would never come back from that a lot of people would never want to come back from that rightfully so like a lot of knockouts that vicious and everything you've accomplished Maybe you want to go out on one more win, just like, you know, for your fans or something like that. But in terms of making a major impact and really coming back, nah. But no, you know, Pacquiao, he went on to still have another, like, after that, what? Think of the, what he ended up doing in that decade. Even if he wasn't fighting that much, he still ended up having an incredible, <laughs> to, to solidify him as one of the all-time greats. And Amazing. Marquez, Marquez, this was what he needed. Like, he created three fights of absolute frustration trying to always cling to get that respect that Pacquiao had that he felt should have been his. And he finally, with that one punch, erased everything. That was the biggest one. You can't, you got to give that to him. It was absolutely incredible for that to happen. And I was very happy for him to win that fight because, like, you know, if you're a guy like you said, Pat, if you had him winning all, all three other fights before that, then this was like icing on top of the cake that he finally just, you know, knocked him out once and for all. Didn't have to go to distance, nothing like that. I knocked his ass out. And, and then did the saltiest shit imaginable and then refused to fight him again. Yeah, I was like, no, exactly. that's it. We're done. Fuck you. I'm out of here. And, and, I, and I got it. <laughs> yeah. And I got your girl. And I danced with her. Fuck you. She just didn't even care. This is hilarious. But this player was basically done after that. He lost a whole hump decision to Tim Bradley. And um, then he beat Mike Alvarado. And that was it. Oh, yeah. But I mean, after that, like, you know, after knocking out Pacquiao, you really don't have to, like, go on a crazy run you've already solidified yourself and a couple and, more and, and another thing that that knockout did give us was a great you know semi-viral moment from marco antonio barrera reacting to it just as <laughs> i want to say it was finito lopez and somebody else like uh ricardo celis or somebody else like calling the fight and and they're when the knockout happened they both stood up and they're like oh you know some shit like that and marco antonio barrera is just looking at the monitor going like speaking of salty sour grapes motherfucker dude 
God, I was a Barrera fan too, but God, that guy's just the sourest fucking sourpuss. I Dude, whenever he would lose, it lose badly. It was it was always a scene. Yeah, somebody was getting a water bottle thrown at their head or something, dude. Like, like fuck, after bro? Junior Jones stopped him in the first way, you remember? Instead of instead of there looking after Barrera, who was laying there bloodied and bludgeoned in a corner, clearly concussed, he's like splayed out. His fucking quarterman comes in and takes his takes his sponge, which he should have been used on Barrera, by the way, like with the water and everything, and then yeah, he flings just... at him and his head. <laughs> he's fast falls. <laughs> he the just beat head. his ass. What do you want him to do? He just, he's won. Like, what's the sponge gonna do to anybody? This is gonna hit him on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm gonna feel that shit. <laughs> which Damn, he did. Just doing his job, beating your fighter's ass. Don't be a bitch. And then yeah. the same thing after Pacquiao bludgeoned him in the first fight, the way they came rushing in there and the fight, you know, and the whole thing, and they just looked so pissed. Oh God, I I know, dude. They oh, like yeah. made him look worse. Like, geez, bro. Yeah, so she's... Nah, that was it's. I know, uh-huh. like it was. It's not super fair, you know. It's not like the best, but it was an unexpected war. I mean, he couldn't do a thing with Pacquiao, Marquez. And as much as we love Barrera, I'm always going to rate Marquez a cut above him, too. I think he just was slightly better than Barrera in all aspects. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, it's just, you know, Marquez also had the style to, to better deal with Pacquiao than Barrera did. Because Barrera only won, like, maybe, what, two or three rounds tops in the 23 rounds he shared with Pacquiao. So, And, and I think that it was immediately after that knockout, too was right when like um, an Eric Morales fight was like, that was, that was yeah. the time, dude, that was the time. And then they yeah. didn't do it. And I was like, Oh no. But I mean, we still got it, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about Marquez Morales. Yeah. 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 That's always a big regret. That's it was so know. close. It was right there. You could have done it, but you didn't. Fuck. Kind of like when we almost had Tito Corte or like, you know, Corte, like Whitaker, we were right on the edge of it. But yeah, Marquez Morales would have been amazing. Oh, fuck. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. What's another one? All right. We go to my list over here. You know what? Just to bring it up because it's kind of a deep cut, but I watched it the other day for the first time and it was pretty awesome. Um, our old friend Tommy Morrison against Ross Purity. <laughs> yeah, Ross Purity, of course, best known for handing Vladimir Klitschko his first, and at the time when people knew it, his only loss. People were like Ross Huidi, what? Huidi? Yeah, what? oh yeah, yeah. You know, again, like I, I, we love the '90s, especially me, like the wheelhouse of the heavyweight division. So I can talk about that for hours on day, but. This was one of those fights, again, that Morrison, a very inconsistent guy, but super popular during his time. Um, you know, how do you explain it? Like, the, Morrison used to catch fire, dude. You know what I mean? When he came out, good-looking, good-looking blonde white dude from the Midwest, knocking the shit out of everybody left and right. Rocky Five movie. Um, that story, which was probably bullshit about him being related to um, John, John Wayne. What did they say he was his nephew? His great nephew or something? At first, I thought you was going to say that story about him not having HIV. Oh, yeah, that too. (laughs) Stop Um, contacting me, Trish. Yeah, please stop like messaging. Anytime I mention do anything, Tommy Morrison, I get some. And you see, you know, on Twitter where it says like it says click subsequent like subsequent comments where you know there's like some vulgar shit in it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Without fail. Without fail. 
Like, <laughs> and then you click on alone. it, and there she is with like two paragraphs worth of stuff and a couple of like very some photos I and don't some need. YouTube links. Yeah. And a YouTube link. Leave us alone. <laughs> I like Tommy. Please, all right. I like yeah. Tommy. Yeah. Disrespect. Like Just leave us alone. <laughs> but regardless of that, you know, um Morrison was by the time this fight with Purity comes up, this was in nineteen ninety four. And um, Morrison basically at this point he had already beat up George Foreman for the WBO belt which was you know a spurious belt at that point but he had lost to Ray Mercer beat Foreman for the belt and then got knocked the fuck out by Michael Bennett and subsequently blew what was it like a six million dollar payday or so against Lennox Lewis back then which he was supposed to have so yeah Morrison but the thing is even though that happened he was still popular like you can't <laughs> the fact that a guy like Morrison um when they're when you're a box office attraction you bring in money you're exciting as a fighter yada 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 you're gonna get multiple opportunities a total god he lost how many fights in a row all on HBO and he still got brought back you know what I mean um if you're popular and you're fun to watch you'll get more opportunities even Broner who's not fun to watch because he's such a loud mouth idiot people want he'll bring in networks things so how many times he loses and yeah, loses like, like two days ago he's talking about making good of his second chance and i'm like what's second chance that's like your 18th what yeah. <laughs> running out of fingers bro seriously bro what's that meme when you see that whether you see the scientist looking around with all the things wrong? <laughs> yeah <laughs> doing some hard math here some training yeah yeah work. yeah so by the time he lost to michael ben and subsequently lost his belt in his hometown by for instance he um you know, he went back on the circuit again, like he always did after losing a big fight. Usually in the Midwest, knocking out a bunch of underachievers, no hopers, scrubs, whatever it is. Because that was the Morrison way. It was easy to do. Rack up five, <laughs> six easy wins, get back on television for a big fight. You know, that's true. So, you know, first off, it works out well. Go ahead. I was just going to say really quickly, I, I got to respect it, dude, because not a lot of fighters do that these days. You know what I'm saying? Like, no fighters are taking, like, interim fights anymore. That shit don't even happen. Nah, man, you know, the 90s, even, like, it's crazy, though, the 90s, you don't, yeah, I was about to say, they weren't that long ago. In 1994, it was almost fucking 30 years ago, so it is that long ago. <laughs> I know. It doesn't, wow, it's crazy to think, man. We're old as shit, bro. What um, are we talking about? The 2000s weren't that long ago, okay? There we go. Jesus Christ. The 90s were pretty long ago, but it was a whole different world back then. But, like, yeah, especially if you were a fighter around the Midwest, around other surrounding areas, that was your gimmick. You stood busy. You know, you, you kept, even if you were a high-profile guy, you kept busy. You know what I mean? You were able to back then. There was, you know, boxing business is a lot different back then than it was now where you could find opponents, guys who had subsequent name changes, this and that. Especially if you fight in Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, this place, that place, where there's barely any sign of a fucking real-life commission going on, and you can find any bullshit doctor that would just give you the most basic of whimsical physicals and sign you where, off. Where is today's Wimpy Halstead? Where yeah. is our Wimpy Halstead? <laughs> Who Morrison actually knocked out at one point. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, there was tons of guys like that. So Morrison goes on the circuit, knocks out Tui Toya. Bruce Scott, Sherman Griffin, just easy, easy wins. And then he fights a guy by the Ross Purity. You know, the heavyweight journeyman, especially in the 90s, was a very important commodity. You had guys there that were just made to go the distance and give you good experience. Jesse Ferguson, um, 
uh, what's his name there? Uh, Everett Bigfoot Martin, who just yeah. passed away. Um, Marion Wilson. Um, Jeff Wood. There's a lot of guys back then that were just really, really tough litmus tests. You, you probably weren't going to get by them, but you were going to go the distance and you were going to learn something against them too. Like it wasn't going to be an easy walk in the park. You might win every single round, but chances are you were going to struggle. Purity was one of those guys. He was eight and eight, former football player, but a dude that Morrison was supposed to bowl over, you know? And as we found out later on in his career, Purity was one of those journeymen that even though if he wasn't going to win, he was strong as shit and he was really durable and he wasn't going to get knocked over really easy. And Morrison, as he always did in all of his fights, start shooting his load really on early on. Left hook, left hook, trying to blow him out, throwing flurries, everything like that. Purity ain't doing much, but he's also not going away either. You know what I mean? And every time Morrison starts floating, excuse me, starts throwing one of those little flurries, Purity just kind of covers up, takes it, wobbles a little bit. He was certainly hurt many times in that fight. And the announcers were like, oh, he's ready to go. He's ready to go because it was on ESPN. So I want to say that was um, Barry Tompkins and uh, I think Bernstein but or somebody else. But, like, they were, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's ready to go, ready to go. And all of a sudden, he doesn't go. Like, he starts fighting back. You know what I mean? And then in round four, or excuse me, like around, like, the, the middle rounds, Morrison starts getting tired. <laughs> and those left hooks start becoming more belagered. <laughs> Impurity who's been taking punches but still fighting back a little bit, starting to get confidence back because he's realizing Morrison is starting to get... And all of a sudden, all it takes is one punch when a guy like Morrison starts turning the tan, tired. One of those wild uppercuts. Tommy Morrison's head goes snapping back. All of a sudden, the same thing we've seen against Ray Mercer, when we saw against Ben, when we saw against Carl Williams, even though he came back to win against other dudes, you see the eyes start getting glassed. You see his tongue start hanging out. You and see his arm was, go down. It was like so obvious when he got either tired or hurt too. Like he just got <laughs> ragged, like out of nowhere. My man did not have a poker face at mm-hmm. all. Once he was hurt, you knew he was gone. <laughs> Hell no. And Purity's eyes awaken. Like holy shit, what the fuck just happened here? You know what I mean? And a reference I've used before, but it was like a pit bull on a pot roast. He sees that. He's like, you see Morrison's head. And he starts dropping, and the announcers, oh no, down goes Tommy Morrison. And Purity is so shocked that he—he's almost looking at his own shit like, oh snap, you know what I mean? And that's the thing with somebody. It's like guys. a superhero who just discovered they have new powers. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like in the first Spider-Man movie. Remember when when Spider-Man told me McGuire realized he had some shit? He was like, oh snap. So. Purity now realizes, wait a minute, I'm not just here to go to distance and lose the decision. I can win this shit. And then it becomes a battle of attrition. And Morrison wobbles him again. Like, Morrison was always involved. Like, you can't deny his heart. Like, if you hurt him and he can come back, he was going to come back. That's why we love Tommy Morrison. And he did start coming back. But, like, and it just became an absolute battle. And that was not supposed to happen in this fight, Pat. That wasn't supposed to happen. This was supposed to be an easy blowout. And they start brawling back and forth. And then when it looks like Morrison is going to win a decision because he had banked so many early rounds, but it was getting closer, round 10 happens. And what happens again? Morrison completely falls off the ledges again, man. Like, he has nothing by the, in the last round. Completely cooked. No stamina. No strength. No nothing. Like, his tongue is hanging out, just dragging across the canvas. And Purity is feeling good. And Purity comes out there and the same thing, man. This wasn't a guy that was like a Roy Jones stylist or nothing. Purity was a crude brawler. But he knew how to throw punches if he hurt you. And again, he same thing. He started throwing an uppercut. Then right hand, the left hook, an uppercut, boom. Like same basic combinations. 
you play the video game. If it works for you, you're just going to use it over and over. That's what Purity does. But you don't need that against Morrison. He drops the shit out of him again. And the same face, they gave Morrison a draw. And a fight Purity probably would have won. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, realistically, he, he maybe could have taken that, especially since it was a 10-round fight and he got two knockdowns. I mean, that's two 10-8 rounds, dude. That's big in a 10-round in a ten round fight. Like, Plus, Morrison you know, was altering in some of those later rounds, too. You give one or two of those to Purity, he wins the fight. Yeah, dude. Well, and and uh, he had fought in Atlantic City, I think, a handful of times, too. I'm not going to say it was like his hometown, but, I mean, he had experience there. But, it, well, and on the East Coast in any case. But, I mean, dude, you know, even – I'm trying to even think just as, as far as the timeline, but when was it? Because it, must, it mustn't have been too long after this that Tommy was – you know, that it came out publicly that he had uh, HIV. Well, couldn't have been so that long after before. this. Um. Yeah, actually. So the fight with Purity happened in uh, July of '94. Yeah. And he fought Ruddick in '95, Lewis in '95, and yeah, yeah, his career was more or less over after that. Well, because I well because I know that remember there was um there was controversy though because they had to be shopping around for commissions who were going to be fucking buying that shit because he had already been. You know, there was rumors that he'd already been diagnosed and shit like yeah. that. So anyway, I, I'm not going to go look up. The well, there was even like some that. rumors recently that surfaced a few years back that there was, you know, that there was um, rumblings that he might have been tested positive for AIDS back in like HIV back in like 1989, 1990. I, I had heard about that. Yeah, yeah I had I heard, heard about, about that, that too. too. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to say, you know, with full confidence, that's true. I don't know. Of course, yeah. But if you know his lifestyle, um, if you know what he was into, if you read the book um, that Carlos Acevedo wrote about Morrison that came out last year, Morrison got around, man. Like, he definitely, you know what I mean? Especially back in the day, dude, he, he didn't leave his areas, too. You know, people get rich and then, you know, leave wherever they come from to go to Vegas or wherever they go. Morrison stood as a local celebrity. He was very comfortable staying in Tulsa and staying around the surrounding Midlands area, just being the king of the world over there. So, yeah, I don't know. Who knows, man? Morrison is a very, had a very fascinating, sad, there's so many words to describe his life. You know what I mean? And um, there's still a lot of mystery out there, too. Even though there has been books written about him, there's a lot of stuff out there and all that. We can kind of gauge what is bullshit and what is not. There's still a lot of, there's still a lot of mystery. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that will never be known. And, you know, it's he basically took to his grave and there's no point in trying to, you know, uh, shit on anybody to get to the truth or whatever. But at the same time, yeah, dude, it's it's kind of wonky. And I wouldn't really uh, I wouldn't really put it past anybody in boxing with enough money to really get to, you know, get anything by anybody. Dude, you know, in the early 2000s, it was uncovered. I was just looking for it and didn't see it because I can't remember it off the top of my head. But there was a, a, a doctor who was totally fabricated and totally fake that was whose name was put on like it was like hundreds of, uh, of physicals for fighters in several different states. And, and I mean, like fighters records were totally, and this was like 25 years ago. We're not talking about back in the seventies, sixties, fifties, some shit like that, where it's like, you know, boxing was always corrupt. We're talking about somewhat recently. So for me, you know, is it like plausible that somebody could have hid Tommy Morrison's AIDS or HIV that long? Yeah. 
I'm Absolutely. no, I don't think that's impossible I mean, whatsoever. It was other, it was other like sketchy situations back then. Remember, um, middleweight Lamar Parks, um, who was on the, who was a scheduled fight? I think it was Gerald McClellan or something for the middleweight <laughs> title before his test finally came up and they found out that he was uh, positive for HIV. Um, off the top of my head, you had another one too, uh, Ruben Palacios. I'm not sure you're familiar with that name. The uh, Palacios, yeah. Palacios, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Palacios, yeah. Uh, former. What was a WBO junior featherweight champion from Colombia or something? He tested positive for HIV soon after uh, losing his belt. Um, Proud Killer Majaro was another dude. I think. Yeah, I was. Then. I was just about to say. Yeah. But we share the same brain, so like you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a relatively famous one, and and they had and they had also uh, there was rumblings around uh, Proud Kilimanjaro too similar to Morris and people were claiming that he had never tested positive. You know, it's, it's Crazy. sad. It's sad. Um, but yeah, dude, no, that's a, that's a good one. Cause I would definitely would not have thought of that one. I mean, sure. shout out to our voice, uh, Jay Stacklo, Stacklo for uh, uploading that recently. <laughs> I mean, it was just one Dude's of those fights. Like, I got highlights, but yeah, that fight was awesome. And if you haven't watched it, it's up there. It's fun to watch. Morrison fights are always fun to watch. So yeah, I don't know if Jay Stacklo or whoever's behind that account is actually like checking out our show, but sometimes whoever's behind that account be uploading some shit that we like just talked about. And I'm just like, bruh. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. (laughs) So if you are, thank you. But anyway, if you're not, then we're stupid. (laughs) But in any case, all right, dude, I got another one. Um, I'll just kind of go back chronologically for this here. Uh, Juan Manuel Lopez versus Rogers Matagua. Great fight. Dude, it's one of those kind of closet classics type of fights where, I mean, the year that it happened, it wasn't a closet classic because that was definitely on the contenders for fight of the year without question. Um, But it it was definitely not supposed to be fight of the year status. Uh, You know, you talk talk about influence like we were bringing up earlier. You know, Juan Ma Lopez was supposed to be the next uh, Felix Trinidad because Miguel Cotto, that's how he was billed early on, but I think it became apparent really quickly that he just was not like that guy, not because he wasn't good, but just because he wasn't, he didn't really have that kind of personality. He was kind of cool, kind of quiet, contemplative, you know, uh, obviously prone to getting in some wars or whatever, but he was always like, you know, he was a little bit more safety first, like, and he was unabashedly safety first, whereas Juan Ma Lopez was like, let's go to fucking war, bro. And that was kind of how Felix Trinidad was. So people were like, you know, that's the next Trinidad. And clearly, you know, he was afforded, uh, you know, some pretty solid matchmaking overall. But he was viewed as the next kind of Puerto Rican superstar without question. I guess he kind of did become one for a minute there. But he was huge, man. In the year, like the, what would you say, like late 2000s, early 2010s, um, Lopez was as was as big as he was gonna get over there at that moment. Man. He was he caught fire. He was huge. Oh yeah, yeah, no question, dude. And you know it's it's funny too because I uh, I looked this up because I it's just a fight that had slipped my mind and then I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, Rogers Matagua, dude. You know he was he was a brawler. He was a dude who's from Tanzania and he'd come over to Philadelphia and was actually promoted by J. Russell Peltz. Uh, you know, handled by J. Russell Peltz and was, I don't, dude, I don't think there was any sort of mystery or any sort of like, uh, you know, nobody was lying about as far as what they thought his potential was or nobody thought he was going to be Ray Robinson. Nobody thought he was going to be anything like that. He was a brawler, but he was clearly very tough and he was, he was down to scrap. And, you know, uh, at a certain level, that's 
you know, you need fighters like that. And well, I guess you need fighters like that on all level, but especially to, to contrast, you know, on, on the upper reaches of a lot of divisions, you know, you need guys who can take it, who are, who can be durable, who can last and whatever, but Rogers Matagua anyway, uh, had just had a fucking brutal war with Tomas Villa. The problem was Tomas Villa is just like, you know, some people would be like, who the fuck is that? I don't know what you're talking about. It, it was a fight that happened on like Univision or something like that. And so it was not viewed by a ton of people. But that in 2008 was a fight of the year contender for sure. Because that shit was a brawl. Tomas Villa was like not taking backward steps. Neither was Rogers Matagua. Shit was, it was, shit was a nice brawl, dude. I watched that shit just to kind of prepare myself. And it was good. But it was also considered like, all right, Tomas Villa is not on Juan Ma Lopez level. You know, and if Rogers Matagua is struggling against a guy like Tomas Villa, who's not a bad fighter, but like, you know, if he's going to go in against uh, Juan Ma Lopez, like, dude, this is going to be bad. And that's just kind of how it was viewed, you know, going in. Absolutely, man. You know, Matagua, like you said, he was a guy that was pulling my pelts. Um, he was featured at the Blue Horizon a number of times. I remember him. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, on Friday Night Fights tonight, like on the ESPN shows, on the ESPN2 shows, uh, he was mm-hmm. featured. And a guy that, like, he didn't look like a world beater, like you said, you know, he was struggled against other like-minded um, mid-level competition and made for good fights, but not someone that you ever thought was ever going to, like, you know, compete with the elite. And if he was going to get a shot, he'd probably get beat down relatively quickly, you know, maybe back to obscurity. Um, Juan Manuel Lopez, he started his rise started as I was starting to work at you know Copy Box and like you know me moving out here and stuff like that. Um, so I remember watching him and working his fights a lot back then. And um, actually, this is a little bit of trivia here. The first time Punch Zone was ever featured on HBO was for a Juan Mile Lopez fight, and I was actually doing the Punch Zone before that like, for that fight. It was Juan Mile Lopez against uh, Jerry Penalosa. Okay. Yeah, when, like, Lopez landed, what, like, fucking 400, 500 punches to Penelope's poor head. Penelope yeah. was just a tough-as-nails guy that wasn't going to go down, so Lopez was just beating him, beating him, and beating him. But, like you said, dude, he was one of those guys that, when he first came on the scene and knocked out Ponce de Leon in the first round, um, that was, like, everybody was, like, freaked. You know what I mean? Everyone was really excited. That was, like, a spectacular moment, too, because de Leon was known as a bruiser and a banger himself, who had some spectacular win, so... For him to get knocked out so suddenly like that easily is going to propel you to be like, you know, a hero in Puerto Rico, or at least one of the, you know, thought about to be a, one of the next big superstars. Um, even the very elderly um, Mario Rivera Martino was in the ring that day. I don't know if you noticed, but after Lopez beat him up, Martino was in there. And this was, the, for people who don't recognize him, Mario Rivera Martino was the Puerto Rico's correspondent for Ring Magazine, every other magazine it was for boxing for, Jesus Christ, what, what back in the 30s? You would say 40s, maybe? Up until yeah. the early 2000s? Like, he was, he was basically, like, the main, the main voice of, like, boxing in Puerto Rico as their writer and everything for decades upon decades. And late in his life, he was able to see uh, Juan Manuel Lopez get coronated like that. And he'd see the look on... Um, Mario Vera Martino's face was pretty cool. He was like elated. It was awesome. But anyways, um, to go from there, like Lopez was a destroyer, man. He was beating the shit out of anyone he was fighting. Like he knocked out, I think it was Steven Levueno, um, who was a former champion. He knocked out a few other guys. Like he was just bludgeoning dudes left and right. So yeah, the, the Trinidad Monkier was coming true, especially because not only did he have a more fun style than Cotto did, like you mentioned, but also because I think he had a more of like 
I think he like related more to the fans, kind of a la Trinidad did, than more so Cotto, who was exactly. more reserved and kind of laid back. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they can relate to him more. Like the fans love Cotto, but Cotto is always so quiet and just kind of you know laid back and reserved that. They need more people more just out there in your face, like Tito just, yeah, viva Puerto Rico, blah, 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 you know, all that type of shit. That wasn't Cotto. That was Lopez. So the fast forward to get to this fight, yeah, man, Lopez, his popularity is at an apex, and everyone wants to see him fight um, Gamboa. That's the fight that people are really clamoring for, you know? Yep. So, yeah. But I was there that night um, at the garden, at the at the theater. And I thought it was just going to be a beatdown, but no, man, that ended up being one of the most compelling fights I'd ever seen live. And to watch the, how it unfolded, how Lopez is hitting him and hitting him and hitting him. Montago is just a fucking tough-ass dude. You know, you got to give a lot, of the, a lot of African fighters credit because, like, the majority of those guys, when they get in the ring, that's what, the one thing they're known for is being durable. You know, guys like Azuma Nelson and Dick Tiger are few and far between in terms of, like, being all-time great fighters from, from the continent, but a lot of the dudes, regardless of country they come from, whether it's Nigeria, Ghana, Tanzania, whatever it may be, they're just known for being tough motherfuckers who come in at superb shape and it's going to take a lot to take them out. And Matago is no different. And so, like, he's going to war. He's observing these, absorbing these bombs that no one else was taking at this point. And then, like you said, it became a war of attrition that Lopez is because he's throwing so much and he's trying to take him out and take him out. He's like, hell, I can't do anything with this guy. That before he knows it, He's becoming exhausted himself, kind of like yep. I like worse than the last way we were talking about. And then the drama starts. <laughs> and and Juan Ma Lopez was the kind of guy where he was like, I mean, like I was saying earlier too, Rogers Matagua, there was no there was no mistaking, like he had lost almost every quality fighter he had fought yeah. against, you know, on several different levels. Martino Nor- Honorio, uh Agapito Sanchez, bro. He lost to Agapito Sanchez, you know, like a Rest little in peace. Yeah, I mean, several years even before this fight. So I, I think it was clear that, you know, he was not supposed to be on this level, but he was just absorbing, dude. And Juan Ma Lopez is the kind of guy where kind of like Tommy Morrison, where like when he got hurt, it's like he stayed hurt, dude. But yeah, he, like Tommy Morrison, he wasn't going to try to clinch or like try to like back away or do nothing like he didn't know anything else. Yeah. Except to you back. When he could get, yeah, when he could get his hands up and hit you back, he would. And he was dangerous when he was hurt. So that was what made it, you know, like, oh, it was super dramatic. But yeah. Yeah, that was the problem, dude, was that Matagua finally kind of just like waited, bided his time, you know, waited for fucking Juan Ma Lopez to punch himself out and start getting tired and then just attacked. And then, and then he, I think it was like round nine, he but for the first time got wobbled. And then like round 10 got like badly hurt and just like never really totally came back from that. It was just like after that, it was just a fucking absolute war where it looked like any moment if if a bad punch landed, Juan Ma Lopez would be out. But it just never quite did, you know, almost. Now, I was so excited because I thought an upset was coming. A lot of people did around me too. Like Matago was just really pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And Lopez was falling apart. Like he clearly had the seams. He had, no, you know, he was he was gone. If this was a fifteen round fight, there's no way he would have lasted a distance. And somehow he did. And like you know, you can't say he didn't deserve the decision. He built up so much in the earlier rounds that yeah. was obviously. But <laughs> it, you know, you were just it, it was dramatic. And at the end, you were wondering, yo, is he gonna is he gonna make this? Because like the water kept on coming above and above his head, and he was struggling to stay afloat. Like it was tough. You know, and that Matagua, yeah. and like his stamina, he was perfect. Like he just got stronger and stronger. And as the momentum turned his way, he felt his, he saw his confidence coming on. 
he felt his energy and he started wailing on him. You know, so yeah, dude, yeah, great. Yeah. And what's pretty awesome too is that after the fight, um, there's a hotel bar across the street where a lot of people usually go to hang out after a big event at MSG. You know, the not so much fans, a few fans will go there, but that's more so it's more so for like promoters and man, you know, the industry people that kind of go there, right? And um, I remember that night we were all over there after the fights, and then Pelts and Matagua showed up, and everyone kind of gave them a standing ovation, especially Matagua, because he doesn't he looked unscathed, like he just. And Pelts is like, hey, oh, for him, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Pelts was there with the biggest smile on his face. (laughs) Well, yeah, he just came in with a conquering hero. Yeah, fuck out of here. But like. Yeah, everyone was really happy to see Matago because he showed up and he was just kind of waving to everybody and stuff like that. And that was cool as hell to see. But yeah. yeah, man, you know, that was that was that was a good one. Um another one I wanted to bring up actually is not on my list, but someone one I just thought of while we were just talking would be Terry Norris against uh, it's not Guy Waters, what's his name? Troy Waters. Troy Waters. Troy Waters and Terry Norris, yeah. And Troy Waters, dude. So it's such a hey, it actually ties in because it wasn't um isn't Liam Wilson from from Australia? Uh yeah. There you go. Troy well yeah, Troy Waters Australian. Well, and just like what a you know, like such a a character that definitely belongs in boxing for sure. Troy Waters, that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like yeah, such yeah, a, was, <laughs> like the kind yeah, of guy you'd was, only see in boxing. You know the night those guys were like the nineties Australian fighters were always a fun bunch, like because they they kind of they they didn't like you know sugarcoat what they were into. Like you know Jeff Harding, who was one of my favorites, talked about how he liked to lay on the beach and just drink Fosters all day. He didn't want to train, you know, and all these dudes. But they were just they were slam banging fighters, you know, really really tough as nails guys and guys that even though if they didn't have the best defense or whatever it was, they were there to rumble and they would give you the best they had for as long as it lasted. And um, that being said. That wasn't supposed to be shit against Terry Norris, <laughs> who at that point, when this fight took place, was at the basically at the top of pound for pound list. Yeah, dude, talk about guys who like we've talked about Terry Norris before and his propensity for, you know, getting into getting into some extracurricular activities during yeah, his, yeah. during his fights. But he could also kind of be spotty too, is the problem, dude. He could just be inconsistent, and every so often he would just put in a. a a performance that was just like what who's this guy when every so when like the other times you just look blinding fast super sharp really good punching power but dude his chin his chin was just not the best absolutely not and you know the thing that i loved about early 90s terry norris which makes him one of my all-time favorite fighters is that he was just like you said pat he was a vicious guy whether that meant he was going to punch you while while you were down on the canvas which was a good chance he was going to or whatever um is one thing but like he he was just fun to watch you were hard pressed to find another guy that was as fun to watch as terry norris was in the early 90s you know like he went in there and he just went to war and he was trying to knock your fucking head off he looked pissed off to begin with you already knew he hated your guts he used to have the most perfect high top fade but sometimes he would have like you know words like um uh you know shaved into his head like knockout sometimes for instance remember when he had knockout like shaved into his head i think before the meldrick taylor fight things like that like norris was the epitome of the early 90s fashion (laughs) when he would you know the thing that i loved about norris is that when he fought guys that were overmatched he wouldn't let them last you know 
not like other fighters who will kind of coast and fight to the level of competition and get bored and fall asleep during a fight or whatever. No. If Norris knew you didn't belong in there with him, he would take you out within a round or two and do it viciously and then talk shit to you after he did that to make you make sure that you knew you didn't belong in there with him. And for me, I love that. Like, Norris was my guy. He's always going to be my guy until the day I die. But, like, there's one fight in 1993 when it's going to look like another routine defense where he's going to bludgeon somebody. Troy Waters, for a brief moment, flipped the script. And it made for one of the most memorable and wildest moments you could have found in the early 90s. Yeah, dude. I mean, like, that was actually, uh, it's funny, too, because um, I didn't know who the, I wouldn't have known who the fuck Troy Waters was at the time, because we've talked about, like, you know, uh, when we have come into our relative boxing. Certainly, I wasn't watching boxing in 93 and know who Troy Waters was. Absolutely not. I wouldn't have been regularly watching. You know what I mean? Like, that's not the kind of shit I would have been regularly watching, but that was in San Diego. It was at the San Diego Sports Arena. And it was at a time where, like, you know, the uh, the Norris brothers, they they trained out of, uh, like, a lot of people were like, oh, they're from San Diego. Like, they're, well, first of all, they weren't from San Diego, number one. Like, like, no San Diego fighter ever is from San Diego except for Paul Vaden, dude. That's, like, the only San Diego fighter. Every other San Diego fight, quote-unquote San Diego fighter, Ken Norton was from somewhere else but was stationed in San Diego. Archie Moore is from Georgia, I think it was, but lived in San Diego and retired in San Diego all these San Diego fighters, but um, no, the, the Norris fighters were kind of known as San Diego fighters, but they trained out of this joint called Campo, which is in like the extreme fucking boondocks of it's like shit is not even San Diego. It's like East County, San Diego. It's a totally fucking different place, but it was close enough that, you know, San Diego claimed them and shit. And so because of that, and they were famous and shit, I got to go. And that was like the very first shit I ever attended. And I mean, you know, I, I couldn't tell you nothing about anything that really happened though. I fucking nine or 10 years old or whatever, but even so, uh, you know, yeah, I'd like, I said, I know nothing about Troy waters at the time either, but Terry Norris, you know, like you said, he kind of embodied the, I don't know, spirit or whatever of the nineties, you know, he was up on the fashion. He was always, you know, like, kind of like uh, come out to hip hop, you know, he had the high top fade and shit. always had the hot fucking, uh trunks and like the outfits and shit like that he was high paced you know aggressive fucking hit hard looked smooth when he was on so yeah dude you would not have expected somebody like troy waters who you know troy waters dude he came from a boxing family i think he was a good amateur he was a high level amateur so it's not like he was some nobody and he was a decent puncher and whatnot but it was like you know you just you would not have expected like a Terry Norris, but the inconsistency, bro. So yeah, <laughs> for a brief moment, he almost had Terry Norris out of there. I mean, in round one, Norris drops him hard. Yeah, dude. He, well, and and he was like, yeah, like we were just talking about the kind of guy where he's just wobbly, dude. He loses his legs, gets hit on the temple, and it was like wobble, wobble, you know. And every so often, like he'd he'd uh, make his way back into a fight and stuff like that, but often he was just wrecked. As soon as he got hurt, dude, like he was fucking done for. And, you know, like, yeah, just the inconsistency was killer, bro. The inconsistency from him was killer. And uh, against a guy like Troy Waters, who was like, you know, having his moment, that was his moment coming from fucking uh, fighting out of, I think, the UK, but an Australian dude fighting out of the UK, coming to San Diego, fighting a dude who's, you know, essentially fighting, I guess, in his backyard, like we were just talking about. But, that's your moment, bro. That's your Liam Wilson moment. Uh, but yeah, just no, it was up. huge. 
and I ended up scoring. We ended up becoming the um, round of the year for Ring Magazine, round two. And rightly so, dude. You know, anytime you get the kind of back and forth, either knockdowns or, you know, two guys getting hurt, uh, the opponents getting hurt and shit like that, dude, <laughs> that's tough to beat. And in a three-minute span, that's pretty tough to beat. Now, it was incredible. And that's just what made, uh, again, like what made Nor- Norris fight so compelling is that you didn't know what was going to happen because soon after that, um, he loses in a major, major, major upset to Simon Brown in a fight that everyone thought that Norris was going to easily dominate in. And then Brown bounces around with the basketball. Um, Norris comes back, ends up scoring a shutout decision of him. Probably his most boring fight you can think of, if you got to watch one, was the rematch with Brown. But he wants an easy decision in the rematch. And then, soon after that, in 1994, at the end of 94, going into 95, is that infamous, weird, awkward, awful trilogy that he had with well, the one and only Luis Santana. So, yeah. Oh my god, dude! Yeah, like just the first two fights are just like it. You, you get the same kind of feeling as like when you're watching Bo Galata with on this in the second fight, where you're just like, "This again? What?" You know, and but, but even I, it's even more so odd because like you know the first fight people forget because of the ending. It was actually kind of competitive. Santana wobbled Norris. Mm. At one point, and you know, made it. He, he was inspired in that one, but then you know, <laughs> Norris hit him like behind the head. Santana went down, wouldn't move. Um, and then the fiasco started where the referee was accusing Santana of faking. <laughs> I've never seen that before since. And even if you think he is, you can't do that as a you can't do that as a as a doctor. As the doctor, the doctor literally was saying, "I think he's faking. He can get up." Santana's laying there in the ring, sprayed out. Freddie Pacheco, the fight doctor, is ringside, going absolutely insane, screaming at someone to take care of him. The, um, I think Mitch Halpern was the referee. Mitch Halpern and the doctor in the corner conversing while Santana is laying there, unattended, unconscious, in the middle of the ring. It was an absolute fiasco. So. And then, yeah, and then they had the rematch, and like you said, uh, another fiasco happened before Norris finally got rid of him once and for all in their third fight. But yeah, I I definitely feel like there was some acting from Santana going on in those fights. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, but, especially the second fight. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of like the chickens coming home to roost, bro. Like, stop fouling people, Terry. Stop fouling them. The second fight, Norris and the ding, ding, ding. Wow, hits him clearly after the bat. Yeah, like it's like ding. Bam. <laughs> no. And Santana, who got dropped in the first round, barely uh, landed the whole fight. Uh, knew he was going to get uh, knocked out. Just uh, dropped like that. <laughs> Two fights in a row, he got stretched out and won the fight. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, Terry. I love Oh, him. man. Yeah, I know. I But it was, bro. It's so one of my One of my all time favorite people, man. I remember at the Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't I don't know if it was the year he got inducted or a different year, but um, we were there. We were at Graziano's bar, and we were I – me. Mean, I'm just a kid. I, like, again, I told you stories where I'm, like, way under 21, hanging at the bar with all these old fighters. They're buying me drinks. I'm just, like, hanging around and bouncing around like a – in my element. You know what I mean? Because they all love me. And I'm hanging out with Terry Norris. <laughs> and, like, I don't know. I think I have a beer at – and he has something, and we're drinking, and we're talking – and I said something that made him laugh, and he doubled over and he decided to punch me in the stomach because he was laughing so hard from it. He's like, ah, 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 ah. and then, like he hits me, not hard, but like enough that it made me double over and start gagging. Because <laughs> it was just like a love tap. He was like, ha ha ha, and he kind of slapped me. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And I just kind of looked at him. I was like, the fuck, you get a Sugar Ray Leonard flashback or something? No shit. I'm not knocked down right now, bro. Don't hit me. <laughs> and then he just grabbed me and laughed even harder. I'm just like, ooh. You, you know the part Richard Pryor said in his, uh, in his, um, his stand-up where he said, when you get the air knocked out of you? He was like, you ever hear air just say, fuck it? Yeah. yeah he just had the air just knocked out. I was like, ooh. ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and they're still laughing. I'm like, don't. <laughs> It makes you wonder how hard he actually hit if you just kind of love tap me slapping and as it did a joke. Yeah, no way. shit, dude. Uh, yeah, well, that give that gives you an idea right there. Oh, oh god. <laughs> All right, let's see. All right, I got a I got a pretty good one. Um, I got this is as far back as I went. Um, so in 1971, on the undercard of Muhammad Ali versus Buster Mathis in Houston. Uh, you know, a former heavyweight title challenger by the name of Cleveland Williams fought George Shavalo. And that was definitely, I mean, Cleveland Williams had years before this been shot and had, uh, I mean, was injured badly when he was shot and had, and, you know, we might be doing a, an episode about Cleveland Williams in the near future, but he, uh, you know, had a, uh, a, a significant portion of his intestine removed and after that, uh, it's basically said that he was never the same fighter. He was never in quite the same shape. He never looked quite the same way. His mobility oh. was a little bit limited because I think he had also had a leg injury. Well, uh, Pat, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off really quick, but like with, with the significant injury he had, wasn't it true that the doctor said if he wasn't in the condition that he was in, that he would have died immediately? Because that's what like, they said. You got to think of the physical specimen Cleveland Williams was. This guy was an absolute Adonis, especially in an era where dudes weren't body beautiful like that back then. And well, and you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to say that like ch cheating or whatever didn't exist. I'm sure it did, but you know, not to the point where like they didn't have EPO, they didn't have HGH, testosterone, I don't, I don't even think you know, anabolics. They did not have any of that shit. Basically it was just like you worked hard. You know, and, and I'm sure a lot of it was genetics or whatever, you know, certain people, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But point being, the dude was a fucking ripped beast, just an absolute scary looking son of a bitch, dude. And he could punch like a motherfucker. And so, but at this point, even so, yeah. And so, yeah, to, to answer what you were saying, yes, when uh, it was reported that basically he was in uh in surgery or recovering from surgery in the newspapers the doctor on hand because it was he had gotten shot by i think it was a state trooper or a highway patrolman i can't remember which but in in any case he got shot by law enforcement and he had gotten transferred to the hospital and wound up needing if i'm not mistaken like a blood transfusion and so got it and recovered and the doctor one of the doctors on hand was basically like he would be dead if he weren't in such good shape and if you look at him, you'd be like, so pretty much everybody would be dead but him because he's in absolutely amazing shape. But even then, so that's years before this. In 1971, and I mean, you know, George Shavalo himself, it was, you know, he was experienced. But in 1971, Cleveland Williams was supposed to be pretty much just shot, like non-existent in the heavyweight division. I have no idea what the hell he's supposed to be doing. And now he already, already poleaxed him at that point, right? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah, years, years before. Or yeah, yeah, years before, 
and uh, Sonny Liston, and that was years after Sonny Liston had taken taken care of him twice, and yeah. and the second time with extreme prejudice, just like absolutely beating the shit out of his face, like Cleveland Williams' face when Sonny Liston kicks his ass the second time, he looks like bewildered, like he just looks like, "Get me out of here, please." Well Cleveland Williams also, too, you have to say, by 1971, that is a significant time because Cleveland Williams' career started actually in the early 50s. You know, like, he was around for a long yeah. time. He what was one fuck? of the charter members. He had no business of, still being around. No, none at all. He was one of the charter members of the Custom Auto Against Contenders Club, you know, where anyone with a pulse was not going to get a chance against Floyd Patterson. So... Yeah, Cleveland Williams was part of one of those lost generations of heavyweights in the 50s. We talked about the lost generation of the 80s for, for different reasons, drugs, X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. The lost generation of heavyweights of the 50s was mainly a lost generation <laughs> because of one man, Customato. You know what I mean? Floyd Patterson's manager who made sure anybody who had a, any a remote chance of, not, of disposing his champion off the perch was automatically aligned with the mafia and therefore didn't deserve a title fight and yada, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, Cleveland Williams was at the very top of that list. So. And, and I mean, you know, it's tough to say, I don't know. He's, he was vulnerable himself. He didn't have the greatest chance. I, mean, I, I honestly think Patterson would have beat him in a fight, but like, Probably. You know, did. but it's safe to say, yeah, he was avoided like the plague back then. Just because. Yeah. But we don't know because he avoided him. So it's like, that's exactly. Yeah. And, that's, and, that's so much Floyd. Yeah, you know, he's a I, I definitely have mixed feelings about him, uh, especially like hindsight being 2020 and not there's a lot of just weird wonky shit going on with Cuss. Uh what <laughs> we won't get into that. Point is, you know, yeah, um without question, Williams was kind of avoided and then got fucked over with his injury, you know, getting shot and then, you know, at this point in 1971, he was he was done. He wasn't really a contender, really, at, at, at any point. The only uh, win that he had gotten, and this is another potential, if I could even find more information on him, because I've already tried and can't really, but Ted Gulick, who had a very awful end himself, that was the only, you know, real serious win he'd had in a few years uh, or a year or two. And basically, you know, he, he wasn't really, if you're getting defeated by Jack O'Halloran, you're in bad trouble, dude. <laughs> With all due respect, you're in you're bad trouble. Alvin Blue Lewis is knocking you out. You're in bad shape. So, yeah, George. Not bad fighters, but this ain't, you know, this ain't top tier guys over here. No. Yeah, not terrible guys, but guys you should be beating if you're a contender. And if Williams was, and let's be honest, if Williams was at his prime or even close to where he probably would have beat these guys. Yeah, you would have teed off on Jack O'Halloran like something awful. Just oh, absolutely yeah. terrible. And so, yeah, you know, he, this was not a fight. People were kind of like, where is this going? This is on the undercard of Ollie. You know, this is terrible. But then uh, without, bro. You, it's all it's on YouTube. People can go watch it for themselves. It's not necessarily. I don't know know if it would fall under the category of war, but it's a very good fight, like an unexpectedly good fight, and the kind of fight where, especially with Shavalo, you know, if Shavalo did not have the kind of chin he had, dude, Cleveland Williams might have been able to get something done in there because he landed some fucking wrecking bombs on him. Absolutely, man. Shavalo is known as probably having the most solid chin in heavyweight history. And rightfully so. Like, he was never knocked off his feet. Um, he even just looks like his chin is like, it's like big. He, like, he well, doesn't look that, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
the times I met him at the Hall of Fame, the few times I met him in the early 2000s, dude was just a cinder block. You know what I mean? Just thick and strong. Like you said, his head it was just strong and his jawline and everything. Like you can see why he was able to absorb that shit. And imagine getting in the ring with Corbin, <laughs> Frazier, Cleveland Williams, all these other monster punches. Boy, Patterson teed off on him. Uh, everybody did at one point. You know, you name it. Chavalo had a long, long career from the 50s, late 50s, all the way into the mid-70s. Like, think about this. All right, to give you an example how long Chavalo was around for, Trevor Burbick was around chasing him around for a fight for the Canadian heavyweight title before Chavalo retired. That's how long Chavalo was around for, okay? <laughs> like, Trevor Burbick was in the 76 Olympics. So Chavalo was still an active fighter, kind of, around 1977-78, somehow. I don't know if there's any recorded fights of him, but I think he was still holding the Canadian title at that point. Regardless, yeah, he was around for a long, long time. And that was his main thing was having a shock absorber of a chin because he was rugged. He was physically strong, but he wasn't a knockout puncher and he wasn't a great boxer and he was extremely slow. So it, his it was body only, was. It was only Foreman and Frazier that stopped him. And one yeah. was because his eye was just an absolute shit shape and, you know, his face was falling apart. But in both instances, he's basically like, what are you doing stopping it? Like absolutely getting exactly. bludgeoned and like almost half to death and it's still going like, what are you doing? It's like, what a absolutely frightening human being. Oh my God. Yeah, well, it's incredible too that considering his longevity of his career and the, the competition that he faced and the amount of punishment that he took, that he was with it, you know, mentally wise for a number of years. Uh, reports have come out the past few years that clearly he's on the back end now and not doing too good and yeah. everything caught up with him, unfortunately. But um, the times I met him and even years after that, like, you know, facing he was, Ali, he was in that. Facing you know? Ali. Bro, the, I'm saying, man, yo, the, the amount of detail he was putting into that, like he had dates down. He had this down. He was explaining this, explaining that. He explained how he got in the ring after the first Ali, after the second Ali listed fight and confronted Ali about how it was bullshit. Like he had... He was probably, out of anyone on that entire episode, out of that entire series, when that came out, um, probably the most articulate guy, like, in terms of just remembering things and just breaking things down for you, you know? Like, it yeah, was incredible. Sure. So, it's sad now to know that, like, I guess it's all caught up to him, and uh, there's, like, I don't know, like, legal battles in terms of who takes care of him or his family and all this stuff. I know there's been some strife, but, yeah. He was pretty, it's pretty incredible. He lasted as long as he did as just being normal. Good yeah, call. Dude. As a deep cut, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's definitely, I guess the whole point is like unexpected shit. So exactly. <laughs> you know, that's, is, we're going to be pulling some shit out of our ass here. What are you got another one? So no, I'm going to bring up to you on my last one. And this is one, this one isn't a deep cut and it's a fight we've talked about multiple times, but if you don't bring this up, you're doing a disservice to this whole subject. And that's Salvador Sanchez and Zubinelski. It, it's maybe, you know, we've, we did a show before where it was, I, I want to say it was like last minute replacements or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah We really went to a deep thing about this fight and we so, definitely talked more about it, but dude, it's a great fight. It's a great subject. Both fighters are fun to talk about. There's some Don King in there. There's a little bit of Mickey Duff. Yeah. It, it's incredible. And, and the way it all comes together, you know, Sanchez is legitimately one of the greatest Mexican fighters in history. And at that point, he was one of the most popular fighters on the planet, and he was rightfully so 
one of the top three or five best fighters on the planet. You know what I mean? Like his, his credentials proved it. Twice beat <laughs> Danny Little Red Lopez. Um, the the defenses that he made against Juan Laporte, uh, Ruben uh, Ruben Navarro, I think it was uh, his first his first title defense. Um, you know the other the other guys, Pat Connell and um, you know Patrick Ford and stuff like that. The list goes on. Like Sanchez was a fighting champion, and then. Finally, when he fights Wilfredo Gomez, and at that point was probably the biggest little guy fight in history up until then. And he bludgeons Gomez in, in a great fight. You know what I mean? Like, broke his cheekbone, dropped him in the first round, beat the shit out of him the whole fight. And Gomez was supposed to win that fight. Not to say that there was a people thinking Sanchez wasn't going to win, but Gomez was like, you know, legit, it was definitely the favorite. He had a much longer record. He had been, pro- you know, been featured more than I Sanchez. He was the more proven star. Like, I know people like to... Totally. You know, people retcon the history, bro, and it's not yeah. its not true. But that's what makes it even more impressive is the thing. They fuck it up, you know? Exactly. And when you think about how beautiful, like, yo, Gomez, no one was able to do shit to Gomez back then. Like, he was just a two-fisted monster, you know? And Sanchez in the first round mean. came out with a heart, mean as shit. Angry, arrogant, you want to name it, that's what he was. And Sanchez comes out there, drops him in the first round, beats him up throughout the entire fight. Don't get me wrong, Gomez has his moments. That's what makes it a great fight, but you just never get the, you know, Sanchez had one of the great chins, too. Like, the way Danny Lopez dropped bombs on him, Gomez, anything like that, Sanchez would just blink and keep on going, and that's what he kind of did. And then, you know, that ending flurry where Gomez is on the ropes and Sanchez, pop, 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 coming up and just boom, and you see Gomez just dropping the heat, and he looks in so much pain, and his eye is swollen, the other one's fucked up, like, you know. There was, at that point, no one thought anyone was going to touch Sanchez, like, and rightfully so. The only fight people were clamoring for was a fight where it was either the fight with Eusebio Pedroza for featherweight supremacy or the rumblings where he was going to bypass Junior Lightweight and go challenge Alexis Arguello. Mm-hmm. Oh, my and God. And that was the one. Dude, I, I didn't like, get that. My God. And that was Don King, because Don King had Gomez, not Gomez, he had Sanchez, and he had Arguello back then. He would have like, made that happen. He would have. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is before Don was really getting funny and, like, marinating shit and all that in the 90s. Like, back then, he was much more quicker to try to make big fights and to, to maximize the profit if he could. And he was ready to make that fight. So, yeah, this is where Sanchez was. And that's why a guy like Azuma Nelson, who was only 13-0, coming from Ghana, in the early 80s, where if you try to catch a lot, you had to be like someone like Flash Gordon to get any type of information on a guy like Azuma Nelson back then. You know what I mean? This isn't the days of box rec. This isn't the day of the internet. This isn't, you know, YouTube where you can find some kind of clip of this guy. No one knew nothing about him. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, dude, it was uh, Mickey Duff had gotten involved and basically, you know, uh, <laughs> Azuma Nelson had gotten this opportunity and he'd gotten it way late. You know, he'd got, he'd stepped in at the last minute when an opportunity had come up and basically, you know, uh, there was a lot of skepticism and people like, who is this guy? You know, there's not going to be a lot of credibility. We don't know what to do. And of course, people on sent on, 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 uh, Azuma Nelson's side are just like, we chill, dude, just, just wait. All right. And they were right. You know, they took a big gamble uh, going in there with Salvador Sanchez. And of course, you know, there's a couple of extenuating factors in there. Like Salvador Sanchez didn't really know who he was getting in with, Uh, you know, but on the flip side, Azuma Nelson had the last minute get in with Salvador Sanchez. You know, that's fucking, that's big on his part too. And he turned in a really incredible performance, all things considered. 
throughout his career, Azuma Nelson wound up proving himself to be a serious workhorse, the kind of fighter that like just you just didn't want to be in against when he had any sort of rhythm or momentum or was on. Uh, he was an absolute nightmare. He was had a really difficult style to deal with that was like just the right blend of defense and just, you know, he was a countering fucking machine. And I mean, you know, he was an absolute nightmare to fight. It proved years after that that he was. He just had not developed. He was very green, very inexperienced. And even so was pushing Salvador Sanchez, man, really pushing him. Well, yeah, to, to get back to your point where you said about Mickey Duff and those guys. So Sanchez was supposed to defend against a guy named Mario uh, Miranda, who was a Colombian puncher and, you know, top contender. Miranda pulled out, and then, like you said, like at the last minute, San, uh, Nelson gets brought in there. And no one knows anything about Nelson, but if you look at Nelson's record, if he's enough to score a box record, you'll know, you'll see that in his first pro fight, he went 10 rounds, which is wild to think about, actually. You know, like we hear a guy, you know, like Lomachenko turned pro. He won a world title fight in his first pro fight. Some guys, like in, in the surrounding areas, they will they were they will turn pro and like fight experienced dudes right <laughs> off. Mostly kickboxes from Thailand and shit like that. But Nelson turns pro. He's already a ten, you know, uh, ten rounder. And besides an odd eight rounder at some point, all of his fights up to Sanchez are ten rounders and twelve rounders. They don't go the distance, but I mean, they give you an example of like what what he was already dealing with. So I mean, like he's getting the rounds and he's getting some fights in and getting some experience by the time he fights Sanchez, he's already a commonwealth champion of europe so like he's not an absolute pushover but this is a huge leap going from you know fighting guys like brian roberts or uh someone like that david capo to fighting salvador sanchez so but yeah when this fight gets made and they bring it up and you know when the deal gets made they ask mickey duff so oh, you're bringing one of these guys over mickey duff you know former manager who's been known to work with fighters from Africa, most notably uh, John Beast Mugabe, right? Or was that George Francis? Did Mickey Duff have something to do with him? Wasn't, wasn't that was George he... Francis that had? I think that was George Francis that might have had uh, Mugabe. But regardless, well, Mickey Duff. Either way, yeah, <laughs> Duff knew what he was doing. And when they asked him before the fight, "Oh, you know, you work with uh, the Kitty fight, blah blah blah," Duff literally said, "Ha ha ha ha." He was like, you'll he was like, you'll see. You have no idea what you guys just got yourself into with this kid. And Nelson was motivated. Um, apparently before the fight, they said Nelson showed up at MSG and ran all the stairs and the bleachers all around the entire arena. Cause he was just like so wound up, you know what I mean? And yeah, Pat, he gets in there and puts on one of the most incredible fights that you can imagine. Like Sanchez had no idea what he was getting himself in with. And the thing is, even though Nelson really didn't either, Nelson at least had tape to watch on Sanchez because Sanchez was featured so much on television. So it wasn't like an unknown thing he was getting himself in there with. Totally. And like the first round, the first few rounds, Nelson, if you watch later Nelson fights, you've seen him in the 90s and all that. Like you said, he's more of a counterpuncher. He's not that aggressive. Kind of lean back and wait for the other guy. This fight, he's aggressive as shit. He ain't holding them back. He gets in there and he has a special blend of power, speed, and awkwardness. Because he comes in like kind of jumping in at some point. Like he's very aggressive, but it's like, and it's hard to gauge. Like Sanchez, who's a guy that likes to hate to use the word using, you know, filling in data or whatever stupid people say about Cliff. Um, about he's the Matrix. But, yeah, yeah. You know, Sanchez is a guy that likes, to study, that likes to study his opponent, that like to study his opponent to figure out what he was working with. And then after a couple of rounds, starts building off of that and then, you know, goes through it. 
he had no idea. And like, clearly he looked a little bewildered at first. And I think at one point in the corners, he even says to his trainers, he's like, I'm not feeling strong right now. And this guy is like a little weird. And they're just like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. Just, you know, settle down. You'll figure it out. And he does. Stan, that's what makes a great fighter. Sanchez, each round, he adjusts a little bit more, adjusts a little bit more until round seven, where finally, after Nelson has been actually commanding most of the early rounds and Sanchez is a little behind, Sanchez finally breaks through round seven and lands one of his trademark like left hooks as they're like going through a flurry because Sanchez finally was able to start like timing Nelson's flurries. And as he did that, he caught him. Boom! And that was the first time he saw Nelson. That th- did he get dropped? I think he did get dropped. Yeah, it won because he's got this look on his face like, what? Yeah, yeah. And from there, the tide starts slowly turning. Nelson is still highly competitive and even steals some of the rounds after that. But that's when the war really starts because, like, now it's like a war of attrition. There's Nelson, there's Sanchez. Sanchez now is like building off of that. And Sanchez went one of, if not the greatest um, endurance system in history. That guy never got tired. Um, and, and a poker face like a motherfucker too yeah, like it was what a tough guy to fight and each round he seems like he's getting a little bit stronger as Nelson is faltering each round and then and by round 15 Sanchez still looks like he's in round one again his conditioning was un, un, r- ridiculous you know I don't even know like I think it might be a secret because no one's really uncovered what it was that made him so just like impervious to getting tired but like you know that was one of his main traits and nelson on the other hand looked like he just ran 30 miles and like he's at the end of a war right now like he was worn out completely worn out and at that point sanchez was able to finish him off but you can't deny at that point man that was an incredible fight a beautiful fight one of my all-time favorites and um on a personal note i owned a program for that fight that went missing back in december so and i only had a couple of of people in my apartment in december so someone clearly jacked it out of my place because they're a piece of shit bro i hope that is not the case bro but i do hope that you come across that program again or if anybody else does please let me know absolutely but i I just you know all that being said this fight had to be mentioned um that, that 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 really sums it up right there like a fight that on paper no one expected much of who the hell is azuma nelson um even actually a guy that i follow on twitter uh rob silva i think is his name is something like that he's 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 a born and raised in new york and he's an older guy like i think he's in his early 50s now or so but he used to go to all the fights with his dad like we've talked about it a couple of times all the msg fights in the 70s and 80s and um i think he went to sanchez nelson and he told me that he was fighting with his dad before too that he didn't want to go because he didn't know what else there was and nobody thought it was gonna be a bullshit fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily his dad won that one then. Yeah, uh, yeah. It looked like it ended up happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. That's like I said, that's basically like a quintessential kind of like last minute replacement, unexpected, you know, like, oh shit, you know, oh, type of oh. type of fight. So that's a it's a great shout and it's a it's a great example. I only have one more and it'll be fairly brief just because in part, because I don't have like a ton of information and it it was, uh, it was the kind of fight that was like, you know, it came not so much out of nowhere, but again, unexpected war or whatever, Leonard Doran, Leo Doran versus Paul Spatafora. I mean, 
I'm I'm trying to throw some out there also that were kind of fights that have gone forgotten or whatever, you know, yes. especially oh. at the time were either popular or, or recognized as good fights. And dude, this shit was a very good fight. I remember this shit was in contention for fight of the year that year, no question. Uh, and it wound up being a draw. But um, also, I thought that uh, Leonard Doran probably should have won. But what one of the things that makes it somewhat not as unexpected, I suppose, is the fact that Leonard Doran had gotten into that war in the first fight with Raul Balbi. And that, that was, dude, a great, great fight, almost kind of in the vein of a, uh, you know, what was it, Samchak Sith Chachawal versus Meyer Monshapur, where it's like two dudes who you don't even know who the fuck these guys are, you know, at least most fans don't, and they're just like putting on some shit. You're just like, holy fuck, they're throwing down. And similarly, you know, Leo Doran and Raul Balbi, Leo Doran, Romanian guy, Raul Balbi, I'm pretty sure Spanish. And so, you know, to American fans, like they just, if people aren't American, American fans are fucking weird about it. But it was on the undercard of Mickey Ward versus Jesse James Leha, which in and of itself is a kind of interesting fight because there's the cut and it ended early and nothing really wound up happening. But that fight was supposed to be like a war. People are like, oh shit, Mickey Ward, then Leha's been in some wars ended all shitty but then jesse james leha gets the shot against costa zoo and instead mickey ward who would have gotten that shot had he won goes and has the fucking trilogy with arturo gotti so that's i mean just saying there's Great some history well. yeah yeah there's Thank some fucking because movie. imagine how badly ward would have got butchered by Costa. oh god oh god you know but he it would have been a great payday but you know it's it's it, I don't know. <laughs> so you got the trilogy against Gotti and you got an immortality. I don't know. I don't know. No, no, that's a great shout because uh, Leonard Doreen and Paul Spadaforo is, I probably be honest, I don't think I've watched it since it happened. And that fight's what, 20 years old now or so? 21 years yeah, old? Yeah. I mean, uh, let's see. I think it was two, 2004. So 19 oh, years old. But yeah. wait, 2003, 2004, something like that. But point <laughs> is, yeah, it's a long time ago. And that shit was a, a good, just bloody, bruising, and awkward fight, too, because fucking Leo Doran was like a definitely a swarmer, de- like a sh- little dude with short arms that just threw a billion punches. And then Paul Spatafora is just an awkward, fucking angling, southpaw, turning, fucking zip, zip, zip type of shit. You know, that was just like, Jesus. There had been rumors for a couple of years about the Mayweather sparring footage. Dude, people don't remember this shit, but like on on, on Google uh, or a bulletin boards and message boards, dude, there are fucking rumors about like, you know, oh yeah, Spadafora kicked Floyd's ass one time. People were like, shut the fuck up. No, he didn't. And then finally, like people were like about to release the fucking footage and then didn't. And then they released it on a pay-per-view. Any, people don't remember this shit, bro, but this shit happened. In any case... Uh, so, you know, but Paul Spadafore was the type of fighter who was like he he had held a lightweight uh, belt for a little bit, but he was spotty, dude. He didn't have a lot of punching power. And if you had a lot of punching power or were really aggressive, you could kind of make him look shitty and overwhelm him. But like, you know, he he was a, he was a good fighter, just not a lot of punching power. And that hurt. And so you had this guy, not a lot of punching power, Leo Doran, Swarmer. It just wasn't supposed to be a super good fight. It wound up being a fucking war. It really was, and I think uh, it was on HBO. Everybody was presently surprised by that because Spadafora was a very safe... I wouldn't call him safety first. He would usually stay in the pocket with you, but, like, he was a boxer. Couldn't punch worth a damn. Couldn't punch at all, for that matter. And was, like, slick, which make you slip on the inside and then turn you, twist you, do all the thing. He was a cutie. And... 
There was a couple of fights of his, yeah, there's a couple of fights of his that were, you know, a little bit more entertaining than others. Like I remember he got dropped uh against Victoriano Sosa a couple of times yeah. last week. Yeah. And that looked like that was an upset in the making until or <laughs> ended up winning. And um his fir- his fight on the uh first HBO KO Nation against some brawler name, I think Mike Griffith or something like that. Griffin, whatever. Um that fight was a little entertaining too. That's, maybe it wasn't I don't know. But yeah, Spanafor for the most part was just known to be like he would always go the distance and he probably beat you by a wide margin 120, 108, 118, 110, whatever. <clears throat> kind of like he did when he won the the vacant title against Pedro Cardona. He was slap you around. But Doreen being so aggressive the way he was, and Spat of Four actually, I think, slowing down a little bit because if it's around the time period you're saying, I think he was already probably starting to have out of the ring troubles. Um, you know, it just made for a very compelling fight. And Doreen, whose style was always built to made for fun fights with anybody, just again, was able to do that. The only fight, which is kind of funny in retrospect, that um wasn't a fun fight because and is against Matoro Gotti in Doreen because yeah. everybody, everybody was hyped about that. That's going to be the fight. I know. I was too. We all were. I was, I was like, Oh, a swarmer against a fucking dude who was a warrior yeah, and a like, big power. You know, oh, everybody be great. was just like, Are you serious? This is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Blah, blah, blah. And of course, Gotti just, you know, ripped the dude's liver out of his stuff, out of his body with one hook. And that was it. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And I remember not too long before that Doran had fought Chucky e. T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Char- <laughs> Charles Chornovsky. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking legend. <laughs> Fucking yeah, legend. Yeah, Dominic was a fun fighter, but that was the one. Everyone was like, oh, man, he's got to fight Gotti. And we were a hype guy. Uh, the undercard was Jesse James Leha against Bajado. And that was a good HBO card. And I didn't, I told like, yeah, don't tell me what happened. Don't tell me what happened. Because I was going out that night on a date or something. I was like, don't tell me what happened. I'll watch it when I get home. Because, you know, I think he VHSed it. And I got home. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, Bahato got fucking shook and then Duran got fucking took. Yeah. You know what's sad too is that I think at one point, um, again, another fight I haven't watched since then, I probably won't anymore, but I think Doreen was coming on a little bit where they had a couple of like lively exchanges where you're like, oh shit, this is gonna be fun. Like, all right, here they go, they're warming up, and then it ended. Where oh oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I think they had a couple of lively yeah, exchanges. Like it's it started. Like it looked like all right, yeah. Duran's gonna start kind of landing some punches here, and then it just burp that fucking <laughs> body shot ended matters, bro. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, dude, I you know, think that's probably the best scenario because you know that was gonna end up being a war if not. <laughs> you know, the good thing is that I think everything that we've talked about is on YouTube. So it's yeah, like it you is. just you know, to just go back and follow along. No, there's that's... other fights too we wanted to bring them like you know there's other fights too i wanted to mention but you know there's only so much time yeah like, you had a long list yeah yeah mike tyson buster douglas which the anniversary of that's coming up so that might be an episode coming up soon um mickey ward reggie green you know what i mean that was a, one of those friday night fights fights that um reggie green was a good fighter fringe contender i mean fought for the title a couple of times but always a step below and Ward at that point was exciting, but I don't think he had really developed the reputation yet of being an all-and-out, like, blood-and-guts guy. But he kind of had it, but, like, he didn't have the dance partners yet. You know what I mean? His most compelling fight at that point, I think, was still Alfonso Sanchez. So 
well, and, 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 and seconds before that, they're talking about, can they please just stop this fight? I hate this fight. I want to die. You know, like they're like throwing some crazy hyperbole out. And rightfully and then... so, because Ward wasn't doing shit. That oh, was yeah, that was awful. awful. Yeah, absolutely awful. But Mickey Ward Reggie Green ended up being one of the best fights Friday Night Fights ever aired. And as far as I know, I don't think it's on YouTube. I heard, I think uh, a couple of people were griping about it the other day. Our buddy Reggie, uh, Reggie Dunlop from Twitter. And um, Eric Raskin, I think we're talking about it on their own, saying that the fight wasn't on there. So Mark Medell, Carlos uh, Santos, which was a junior middleweight title fight in the 80s. Santos was known as a runner, and Medell wasn't known as much of a guy himself. But those two ended up putting on, at that point, was the best title fight the junior middleweight division had seen up until, I don't know, probably Trinidad and um, Tita, Trinidad and Vargas. And then we mentioned that one. And then Polly Ayala, Johnny Tapia. Because... I'm sure people thought that'd be a fun fight, competitive fight. Both guys threw a lot of punches, but they never thought it'd end up being the fight of the year where Tapia would end up losing. Yeah. Now that I talk about their second fight, second fight was kind of meh that Tapia should have won, but their first yeah. fight was awesome. Yeah, though, no, the first fight was just punches, dude. Yeah. And the last one I came up with was Joe Lewis, Billy Kahn. Joe Lewis, big favorite. You know, Billy yeah. Kahn wasn't supposed to, you know, it. it it wasn't like back and forth action per oh, se, it but it was yeah, like, but what? I mean, imagine us being back then, alive back then, right? And let's say Twitter was around or everything like that. Everyone would just be like, "Oh my god, what's happening here?" Calling Pretty it sure out. it was voted fight of the year. Oh, it totally was. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. And in the being, and, and and it was in, in years later when Ring Magazine in the nineties did their one hundred best title fights ever. It was ranked relatively high. I know. I mean, it, significance or whatever, sure, but like sustained but this, action. This is, also, really. this, is the same, this is the same publication that rated Dempsey Furpo number two back then. So, yeah. I, dude, I and I love Dempsey and Furpo and all that shit, dude, but it's just like, go watch the fight. It ain't like that, dude. I mean, it's good, but it ain't like that. Oh, it's just, it's a, it's a fight. We've, we've brought up like seven that, fights on this show alone that are better than, you know, like, I'm I mean, better than that shit. Yeah. Like, just on this episode, like, Fucking Sith Chacho, all my should pour shits on it like a lot. Are you kidding me? Yeah. But anyway, you know, yeah, I'm I'm with you. No, uh, that's a good call too, dude. Lewis Khan, you know, just definitely well, and- just because I mean, like, not, I'm not gonna say that Billy Khan was a member of the Bum of the Month Club. I'm I'm sure people back then gave him more credit, but he was undersized. Lewis was at his peak. You know, this was before the war when Lewis was still bludgeoning, you know, blasting dudes left and right, and. Khan put on an incredible performance that Lewis was just befuddled by. Like, it, it was. It was. Well, like and he Khan. was a former middleweight, too. Yeah. So, like, people were yeah, like, that's what they were saying. Khan was a little guy compared to him. He was tiny, very tiny. He couldn't just stand back and just box him. Like, he had to jump in and flurry and jump back out and use all of his fucking guile and skill for that one. It's a beautiful performance. Probably the one of the most better in terms of like boxing, um, ring generalship and just skill and everything. It's up there as one of the most impressive performances you'll ever see. Until he finally decides yeah, to get it. Right the until the end. <laughs> What's the use of being Irish if you can't be stupid? Like, and then Lewis lands the most vicious combination, right? You see when Kong gets hurt, you see him. <laughs> like you oh, little yeah. Sh- he was mad. <laughs> he was mad. He was, yeah, he was like, <laughs> you're, you're not getting up, buddy. And then Kong just holds his head up and you see him slowly go down, just. Yeah, he just kind of slumps in that one. The the rematch was like, oh, just sickening oh, knockout. Like, oh, 
Well, by that point, Lewis was washed up. He was in the army. Khan was even more washed than Lewis was. Yeah. You missed your chance, buddy. That was it, and you missed it. No, that's a good call, dude. And I think we came up with a pretty solid list. And obviously, there's going to be a lot. Since we talked about some somewhat obscure stuff overall, dude, there's going to be people, you forgot about blah, blah, blah. What about blah? Bro, we're not trying to do a comprehensive list. Just having fun. Just having fun, bro. Relax. Hey, man, I appreciate you, though, dude. You did, you did your homework. I did mine. It's a lot of fun. Always. Always. It's a blast as always. For sure, man. Thanks so much. And everybody who listened in, Thank you so much. If you listen in via those newfangled podcasting apps they got these days, go ahead and subscribe and give us a rating if you would. We appreciate that. But if you watched on YouTube, which we've been doing a lot more lately, thank you. Thank you very much. Subscribe there as well. Leave a comment. We'll try to get back to you. Uh, you know, There have actually been uh, more comments than normal lately, so I haven't been able to return. Blah, blah, blah. You got it. We'll try to return them. But thank you. Uh, as far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcasts on both Facebook and Instagram. Also on Twitter, which may, may not be working at any given time. Who knows? But if it is working, we're there. But individually, we're also Dying there. Sight. Dying sight. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's for the time being, Eris is there as Punch Zone Eris, and for the time being, I'm also there as Patrick M. Connor. so say hello, and we'll also say hi back if we can, Eris. Talk soon, bro. Sounds good, y'all. Be good. Later, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.